This is Alisiana Noir from Alisiana's World of Star Citizen. Welcome to the Night Bus Fiction Collective Volume 1, a compilation of my fan fiction that is aired during Night Bus episodes 1 through 6. This collection also includes a bonus story that gives a glimpse into how Maggie from The Exterminator came to be the owner of the Red Dragon on Grimhex. Readers often wonder about an author's inspiration and motives for writing their stories. Mine can be rather quirky and unusual. As a gardener-style writer, an author who writes without an outline and develops the stories and characters as they go, you might be surprised about how some of these stories developed. I'm including a forward for each story, illuminating its humble beginnings. I hope you enjoy. The night bus is exiting stasis. Please secure all personal items. Departing the station in three, two, one. Chop Shop. I rarely write about the 1% population. The rich, famous, and naturally heroic don't intrigue me. It's easy to be special when the odds are already stacked in your favor. I'm innately more curious by the average person's life. I'm interested in how the maiden lives her life more so than the princess. How the people who live with and around magic exist and the impact to their lives more so than the magician himself. For Star Citizen, I think about the average civilian and what it's like for them living in the universe being fashioned by Cloud Imperium games. I'm especially drawn to story ideas that take a look at the planned player careers and the associated ships. After listening to Chop Shop, be sure to check out Night Bus Episode 7, which is not included in this collective. NB7 was a special show continuing Cammy's story. It was written and narrated from four distinct points of view. I was very pleased to collaborate with three other Star Citizen content creators for the character voices. Chop Shop by Alisiana Noir White hot lightning exploded inside her head, or at least that's how it felt. Cammy screamed and convulsed. Pain rippled through her like a jackhammer. She bucked violently. Rough hands tried to still her. She felt someone shove something between her teeth. All around, sensors blared, voices yelled. She wanted to die. She felt a sharp jab in her left arm. Instinctively, she rolled her head in that direction, but she couldn't see. It was like staring into the sun from one eye and blackness from the other. Slowly, a measure of her pain receded. Her limbs felt heavy, the voices around her quieted. She was weightless and floating away. Wait, no, being carried. Cammy tried to reach out, but her hand flopped back down like a dead fish. She felt someone take her hand and squeeze it gently before folding it up over her chest. When darkness came for her, she wanted to resist. To tell death calling him had been a mistake, 
The pain was manageable now. She fought to stay conscious, but her eyelids were like lead. Her world faded to black. Cammy moaned. She could feel every beat of her heart as a pile driver behind her right eye. The vision from her left was blurry. She tried to look around, only to realize her head was being restrained. She blinked a few times, and her surroundings came into focus. Using her peripheral vision, she could see that she was in a makeshift medbay aboard a ship. The wall racks and wenches on the ceiling gave her the impression it was actually a retrofitted cargo bay. There was another medical cot with an auto dock to her immediate left. A stained curtain separated the two beds, but they were drawn back. Across from her, she saw yellow chipped and scuffed components and the once white MISC logo now gray with the edges faded. Familiar with the layout, she knew that the storage containers bolted along the far wall were blocking the freelancer emblem. The med bay sounded hollow, like being inside a tin can. It echoed the faint sounds of a monitor chirping out the rhythm of her heart. The equipment in her field of view looked dated and dingy, held together with plexi and cable ties. A basin of blood-soaked rags was on a metal tray at her feet. She heard a mumble a short distance away, but couldn't turn to see anyone. She tried to speak, but it came out as a croak. Where? Where? A man in a rumpled khaki jumpsuit hobbled into view. He was hunched over, age bearing down on him. His brown face was cracked like old leather. Awake? He clapped his hands together and nodded. Rasa very happy see this. His smile was genuine. Cammy tried speaking again. Where am I? What happened? Accident, them say, Rasa replied. Came rushing, nearly knocked off orbit, docking fast and reckless. He tutted under his breath as he moved to read Cammy's vitals on the autodoc display. Four carried you on stretcher, had you topped off with opes for pain. Surprise you lasted from Tanga. Near jump, I guess. Cammy's reply had the halting cadence of someone trying to remember a dream, or a nightmare in this case. We were, I think. Lots of bottom-feeding miners in Tanga, harvesting fast, chasing heavy metals. Her voice gained more confidence. I was clearing a jam from the pulverizer piece of shit barely worked. We usually take the raws over to Greyjaw, Jimmy Cheese Reclaimer. This shift we were trying to stay out longer. Make a few creds extra for each of us. Luther and I were at it with rods, trying to clear the input tray. It started grinding, and then there was a high-pitched squeal. Cammy shuddered. Fragment spun loose and... She started inhaling in short, shallow bursts, as if suffocating. Rasa, still standing near the auto-dock controls, tapped a button, then moved to stand beside her. Cammy felt an icy coldness creep up her arm that had the IV. Her body began to relax. The rising terror on her face melted away. Rest now. is over. Be good soon. Can go home. Home? 
He smiled down at her. Yes, he nodded several times. Eye socket cleaned and stitched and gave plasma. Need patch for a few weeks. He patted her hand. But it's good, yes, can go home next day. Enthusiastically, he added, and have change. Change? Cammie struggled to keep up with what Rasa was saying, but she was being tugged down into darkness. As if giving good news, he said, Yes, I do fair prices. Friends leave your share and a bit extra, they say. Help you straight. Cammie replied in a small voice, her tongue heavy in her mouth. But my, my eye? Is it fixed? She went to lift a hand to it, only to realize they were strapped to the bed. Rasa sighed. It's gone, ruptured. More force, you dead. An alert sounded. He checked his Moby. New patient. He plucked at his overgrown salt and pepper beard while reading the details. Seems quick fix. You rest. Rasa come back soon. In a monosyllabic tone, he said, Bed two, curtains. As Rasa stepped back out of the way, the curtains around Kami's bed began closing. She tried to shout out, but it came as a whisper. Wait, please, don't go. I need you to... But it was too late. The curtains swished into place around her, blocking off her view of the rest of the room. Her eyes closed to the step-slide thump of Rasa's retreating footsteps. When Cammy woke again, she was propped up in bed with the curtains open. The bed next to her was empty, but there was a stainless steel cart beside it. Surgical tools, stained bandages, and a used syringe lay on the top tray. Minus the restraints, she gingerly probed the area around her right eye. A wad of gauze was pushed into the socket and secured with medical tape. On top of that was an eye patch. She winced when her fingers skimmed the skin around the bandage. It was taut and hot to the touch. She looked up when she heard the cabin door swoosh open. It got stuck halfway on the first attempt. She saw Rasa step back and then forward to try again. The tired look on his face brightened when he noticed that she was awake. Good, good, let's see. He walked over to Cammie's bedside, his progress hampered by his left leg. It trailed behind him until he pulled it forward with a quick jerk. Examining her injury, he lifted the patch and posted his handiwork. Is good, very good work, he praised himself. Ouch! Cammie tried to pull back from the less than gentle examination. He glanced at the auto doc. Sorry, meds worn off, can give one more dose. Thank you, she replied with relief. Look, I need a replacement put in. How much does something like that cost? Rasa chuckled and shuffled over to the other med bay. You got change, but not that much. He sprayed the bed with a potent antiseptic smelling foam before wiping it down. The task was made more laborious by his hampered gait and limited reach. You get home fine like are now, he grunted while he cleaned. There is no home, and I can't work like this, she said, gesturing to her missing eye. 
No papers for Bremen. I don't have any work but mining in Tanga. Everyone pulls double duty on salvage and miners. No one is going to hire me gimped. Rasa gathered up the used surgical instruments and placed them in a vial filled with blue liquid on the lower half of the cart. He balled up the bandages and chucked them into a nearby recycler. Sounding winded from the effort, he gingerly lowered himself on a nearby cushioned stool and swiveled to face Cammy. Be running, he asked, but he didn't wait for a reply. Tanga, Bremen, no one checking. No one wants these parts but lowers work in these rocks and folks like Rasa doing services, he said while tapping his chest. Cammy looked away. I can't make it out there like this. If you know this place like it sounds, you know everyone is replaceable. There are many waiting to take the next job. No one's going to hire me. She turned back to Rasa, who was watching her intently. Take all that I have. I'll come back with more, I promise. Looking around for her personal items, she added, Sell my Moby. It's a decent one. I can get by without it. Gesturing around her, she said, Place looks like shit. Belatedly, she added, No offense. I can fix things and make minor repairs for you. Please just help me. Rasa sighed. No need. Don't need fix. Just hanging till gone. Sorry, young one. No creds to even buy what's needed, not counting Rasa fee. Cammy dropped her gaze to her lap where her fingers were at war with the bedsheets. Friend have fuel station nearby. Lots come for supplies, too. We go, can set beacon there for a couple days. Ask about work. Rasa knows the good ones. Cammy's voice was flat, dejected. Sure. Thanks. Resigned, she asked. Can you at least tell me what I need and how much it cost? She didn't know Rasa, but her gut told her that he could be trusted. This way I don't get robbed when the time comes. She tried for a smile, but the edges of her mouth barely moved. Rasa reluctantly agreed. Yes, need sleep first. Come back soon. It took him two attempts to stand up from the stool before slowly making his way out of the cabin. Cammy tried to quiet the panic inside her chest. It had taken her two standard Earth years to find a spot on Rally One, a trio of independently owned ships that worked together mining and salvaging their way through backwater systems like Tanga. Decent captain, crew, and fair split on profits wasn't easy to find. She was assigned to the Orion, but occasionally helped out on the Reclaimer and Prospector. Her dream was to someday buy a salvage Prospector to restore over time and captain her own ship. She knew that saving up that much alone was such a long shot. Even so, she allowed herself to dream. It kept her going when profits were low and stomachs empty, when shifts were long and the ship was cold trying to conserve fuel. Even with the ups and downs, the rally organization had a great reputation among the low-tier miners and salvagers. There were a line of people waiting to take her spot, and Rally One couldn't afford to hold it just for her. She knew this and didn't resent it, even though it made her gut twist to think about. They had families to feed. She just had herself. But the idea of finding a new spot was terrifying. 
alone out in the block was a dangerous place to be. She wasn't afraid of being hungry as much as she was the potential for violence. She'd fended off attacks a time or two, barely escaping. The memory made bile rise in her throat. Trying to steer clear of painful memories, she focused on the present. She wondered how much change she had left. How long could she make it last? She knew about stretching credits. That wasn't new. Unfortunately, she also knew that the local Tanga teams were full. That is, any crew she'd even consider joining. Her vision blurred as a trail of tears ran down one side of her face. She dashed them away. There's no crying in space, she reminded herself. When Rasa came back, he was carrying a disposable tray with two containers on top. He still had dark circles around his eyes. Was he hunched over even more? He sat the tray on Kami's lap. She picked up the containers one at a time and read the labels. Pure clean water with electrolytes and protein cubes. Space rations. Been five days, tubes gone, need start eating, Ross explained. Okay, thanks. We exam for cyber replacement. Managing her expectations, he added, just to see, okay? Cammie perked up, yes, please. She set the tray beside her on the bed when she felt it begin to recline. Making his way to the auto dock, he continued, after... We head to Fuel Depot couple days and see. Thank you, really. Cammy reached out and touched Ross's sleeve. This isn't your problem. I appreciate the help. Understand. Had family. Wife, two kids. Hope someone helped them before over. Over? Cammy hesitated. Are they gone? Yes. All lost in Caliban. So few escape attack. Wife and daughter, medics. Son captain in military. Me surgical assist. He let out a long sigh, completely emptying his lungs. Confusion during UEE retreat were separated. They never made out. He wiped at the corner of his eyes. We'll join in next life. A sad smile on his face soon. Cammy was at a loss for words. She was missing an eye, clearly not the end of the world, she tried to tell herself, but she couldn't shake the feeling that in her case, it very well could be. Sorry for your loss was all she could think to say. Me too. Rasa turned on the auto dock. When the status indicator went from yellow to green, he said, Eval, right eye, replace. To Cammy, he said, hold still, eyes closed. A head restraint extended from the med bay headboard. It cupped the upper portion of Cammy's head and applied firm pressure, clamping her head in place. Cammy laid still, her hands rigid at her sides. The scanning unit positioned over the top of the bed word to life. Initiating scan one. Evaluation for cybernetic eye replacement. A light blue beam swept up and down and side to side on Cammy's face. 
Skeletal frame complete. Initiating depth scan. Two mechanical hands descended from the scanner. The metal skeleton fingers clicked as they moved. Each finger had probes for fingertips. Wires looped from one joint to the next. Hovering a couple of inches above Cammy's face, the scanner repeated, Initiating depth scan. Cammy heard a pop and a clang that echoed through the med bay. The spindly metal finger splayed and groped like a crab caught by its shell as they struggled to reach Cammy's face. Rasa cursed under his breath. Stupid scanner. Cammy's eyes popped open. What's wrong? The autodoc chimed in. Error. Initiating depth scan. The hands continued spasming over Cammy's face. She tried sinking further back into the pillow or turning her head, but no luck. She couldn't move without tearing her scalp. Wait, turn it off. Starting to panic, she grabbed the head restraint with both hands trying to move. It's fine, stop, hurt self. Straining, Rasa reached up and fiddled with a few screws and wires. He groaned from the pain of extending his back while he worked. There. Error. Initiating depth scan. Canceling request in 10, 9, 8. Rasa used the bed rail to support his weight as he walked to the opposite side of the bed and repeated the adjustments to the scanner. The cancellation countdown stopped. See? Fixed. Relax. Close eyes. Cammy looked at him skeptically. You sure? Yes. Close eyes. To the autodoc, he said, continue scan. The autodoc whirred back to life, reinitiating depth scan. The appendages lowered, placing sensors at exact points on both sides of her face, temples, brow, and around each eye socket. Cami winced when she felt pressure around her bruised eye, but she kept still as a corpse. After a few seconds, the scanner retracted and announced that the depth scan was completed. Rasa told the autodoc to show the holo. A wireframe holographic image of Cammy's face floated below the scanner. Rasa used his hands to twist the hologram in his direction. He spread his hands over it to increase its size. After reviewing it at different angles, he thumped the areas around the right eye, making the other elements disappear until only the damaged eye socket remained. Rasa told the scanner to display the dimensions. Numbers with lead lines pointing to various parts of the hologram appeared. The autodoc had retracted the head restraint when the scan was over. Cammy pushed up on her elbows, watching in wonder. She'd never seen someone use a hologram up close and was fascinated. How does it look? Can it be replaced easily? Can not the question. Cost is, he replied. He commanded the autodoc to send the dimension data to his Moby glass. He took a few minutes scanning the open market for a synthetic eye replacement that fit Cammy's measurements. He knew that the most affordable option would be an eyeball replacement made using a 3D bioprinter, but even those didn't come cheap. Lesser organs were more reasonably priced, blood vessels, an ear, a finger and such, 
but the complexity of the human eye kept the price out of reach for most civilians. When the Moby returned a price, Ross's eyebrow arched up to his hairline, and he grunted. What? How much? Cammie asked anxiously. Rasa leaned in and let Cammie see for herself. She caught her breath. Oh, wow. There was nothing more to say, no favors to ask. It was completely out of her reach. A feeling of despair settled in her belly. You dress. We go refuel station couple days and see. Resigned, Cammie said. Sure, thanks for checking. It felt good to be up and around at least. Rasa had given Cammie all of the personal belongings the Rally One team had brought with her. She thought about trying to artfully cover her eye patch with her hair, then decided against it. This was her new reality. So instead, she swept the shoulder-length brown curly hair up into a high ponytail. The Bremen fueling station Rasa used was privately owned by a man named Jim Haven. It was an add-as-you-go affair. Fuel dispensaries formed an unevenly spaced arc around the back of a battered starfarer. The day they'd arrived, she'd seen the starfarer carefully back its way into the arch to refill the dispensers. Once in place, customers were allowed to come on board and check the cargo hold to trade or buy supplies. Rasa had left the ship to talk to Jim and others he knew. He was putting out the word that he had a patient that needed work. He came back with bad news. No one had or knew of anything being available. On the second day, Cammie decided to quiet the nervousness in her gut by fixing a few things in the makeshift med bay. She'd asked Rasa if he had any tools. He'd pointed her to a container with a variety of rusted tools, cables, wires, and plexiguns all scrambled together in a heap. She spent an hour sorting out the contents and cleaning the tools before replacing the wiring and the bolts on the scanner and fixing the cabin door that stuck when it slid open. The work hadn't erased her sense of loss and concern, wondering what she was going to do next, but it had at least passed the time. Cammie was sitting on the med bay eating a bowl of soy noodles when Rasa came in. He clearly had something on his mind. Bad news, no doubt, she thought to herself. Rasa rolled the cushioned stool over to Cammie and sat down. No luck, we tried. I know, and I appreciate it very much. Need return, my spot, is where customers know to come. Not all have beacons. I understand. She looked around the cabin, noting where her things were. She'd gather them and get off here. Maybe pay for a ride to a busier location. I'll get my things and get off here. I'm going to try to... Rasa put up his hands for her to wait and cut her off mid-sentence. You come with me. Stay. Tapping his chest, he continued. I teach. You help and fix things. Cammie's mouth fell open. She was at a loss. Was he serious? Stay here? It was tight quarters and no privacy in the sleeping berths, but she could sleep in the med bay when no patients were there, she guessed. It was safe, 
He was kind. It would give her time to figure things out. He nodded. Not hardly much pay, but have bunk, food, and safe. Is safe here. He stopped speaking, breathing, and closed his eyes for a moment. When he opened them again, he said, Rasa tired. I'm waiting to join family in next life. Kami heard a sense of peace in his voice when he talked about being ready to join his family, so sure in his beliefs that he would. The calmness he radiated washed over her. How can I possibly? I'm not a medic. Do autodoc service only when Rasa gone. Go place where is less fee but more work you young can do. He smiled. Leave if find better, till then is home. Gesturing around, he said, You keep when Rasa go. Scavengers don't deserve. You have. Cammy's mind was racing. Was he for real? Why do this for her? No one had offered her so much since the elderly couple had smuggled her and five other teens out of the state-run orphanage on Charon Three. The couple used to deliver supplies a few times a year. However, the increase in attacks and bombings made up their minds to drop the route altogether. On their last trip, they offered to smuggle out anyone willing to go. Fairly poor themselves, they had little to offer but this chance at freedom. They dropped the lot of them at a space station in Tyrol. They'd given each of them a couple of credits, a sleeping roll, and a few days of cubed protein rations. Those first few months had been terrifying, in some ways more so than the civil war that was raging in Charon. What think? Cammy returned from her reverie, wide-eyed and dumbstruck. She found it hard to speak above the lump in her throat. Are you sure you don't have someone, anyone else to leave this to? No. All lost. All gone. Cammy slid down from the bed and crouched in front of Rasa. Taking his hands in hers, she said, Yes, I would like that, and I will do all that I can do to help you. They were both crying now and not ashamed, not trying to hide the tears. Cammy swore to herself that she would repay this kindness. She would help him. She would fix the ship and she would learn all that he wanted to teach her. In time, he could just rest. She'd do it all and take care of him. A different kind of future blossomed in her mind's eye. Joy swelled in her chest and rung in her ears. She would repay this gift to Rasa and forward to someone else, somewhere, someday. Trolley Cart Interlude I enjoy flash fiction and wish I had the penchant for writing more of it. The number of characters, scenes, and moments in time that come to me, I'd be very happy if some of those could make their way onto the page as flash fiction. However, for better or worse, my plotting tendencies are a bit too verbose for that. In the case of Trolley Cart Interlude, I'm pleased that this one worked out in my favor. If you're unaware, 
The Star Citizen Night Bus show name is a nod to J.K. Rowling and the Harry Potter series. Her stories are wrapped around sweet memories of waiting for the books to be released with my family, of that shared excitement and exuberance of taking another adventure with Harry. My goal with the night bus was for it to be a mixed bag, much like the night bus in Harry Potter, where not everything is what it seems. Trolley Cart Interlude is another nod to that series based on the beloved Hogwarts Express and the many escapades that sometimes took place while the students were in transit. Of course, my setting is science fiction, but I hope I delivered on the irony and surprise. Trolley Cart Interlude You're asleep inside your private berth aboard the night bus. You're dreaming of the credits you're going to win gambling on MacArthur in Killian. Like taking candy from a baby, you plan to fleece as many military types as possible. If you're lucky, you might score some primo narcs to sell out of your wrecked cutlass turned home base on Spider. Your mouth is full open, gargling back a snore when a knock at the door startles you awake. Swiping drool off your face, you grunt, Oh, is it? No reply, but another knock. Caution makes you slide quietly from the cot. You creep to the door and flatten a bloodshot eye against the peephole. You see a young man dressed in an attendance uniform. He has a food trolley cart beside him. Sizing him up, he seems a bit bulky for dressing like a dandy. He has one hand on the cart and the other bent behind his back. Releasing the cart, he knocks again and bellows, Breakfast! Your stomach grumbles. Rubbing your chin, you think, It's near time for it, but you don't like the look of this bloke. You didn't have any active warrants where you boarded, but you could have wherever the hell we're rolling through now. Just as the attendant is about to knock again, you shout, Sleepin', shove off! Then you wonder if you have enough time to assemble your pistol. It's disguised as disassembled random parts across multiple suitcases. You curse yourself for not having done it before you got snookered in the bar after boarding last night. Turning away from the door, you scan the small berth for your luggage. As you do, you hear pressure on the door. You lean on it again, about to tell the attendant to fuck off with his breakfast. You press an eye back to the peephole. The attendant is bent over, a shit-eating grin on his face as he leans toward the peephole himself. There's a personal shield crackling in front of him, its blue aura glowing brightly. The hand that was behind his back now reveals a military-grade stun pulse rifle, and it's pointed at your door. You start backing away from the door as he says, Peekaboo, I see you. It's time for me to earn my breakfast. The Exterminator He started as a meme and ended, I hope, as a person. I've known people who live by certain unwavering dictums. I'm known to have a few of them myself. In the extreme, things are yes or no, black or white. No shades of gray exist in their world. 
JJ came to mind as such a person, and I wondered what he'd do when forced to choose between black, white, and gray in a situation that contained moral ambiguity. I say I wondered because I'm a gardener-style writer. That is to say, I don't outline and decide everything up front. I don't always know what my characters will say or do until the moment arrives. So I myself wasn't sure which road JJ would choose when pushed to do so. The Exterminator John James, plain name, simple life, John introduced himself, followed by, or you can call me JJ, I've no preference. He reached across the bar toward Maggie and gave her hand a friendly shake. Maggie immediately warmed to his disarming smile. Was it a trick of the light or were his eyes sparkling? On drugs more like, she thought to herself, shit. She might have to find someone else, but he'd come so highly recommended. She stepped from behind the bar to join him on the other side. Maggie was in her late fifties with spiky gray hair she kept long on the top and cut short on the sides and the back. The lines on her face aged her beyond her years, but the fact that she'd been a beauty in her youth was evident. Maggie and John were standing at the bar of Maggie's Red Dragon Pub, a popular hangout on Grimhex. The public space was a large rectangular room divided into distinct quadrants. The decor was a cheap, gaudy attempt at the Asian revival theme that had been popular two or more decades ago. Circular black and white rice paper chandeliers with missing panels hung from the ceiling. Scarred wooden dragons acted as vertical beams, the blood-red paint chipped and faded. A threadbare gold and purple lotus pattern carpet graced the floor. Maggie pointed to the areas as she described them. I've got just the one room here, as you can see. Pool tables there, she pointed to the back left corner. Card tables there, back right corner pointing to the front half of the room where they were standing. Up here is all dining. John absentmindedly scratched at the three days of stubble on his chin as he listened. He didn't say anything, so Maggie shrugged and continued. Pointing to the door centered on the wall behind the bar, she said, back there is the kitchen, my office, and restrooms. Just staff, he asked. Yeah, public restrooms, too much trouble. Kept finding empty vials, syringes, vagrants sleeping, couples fucking, you name it. John laughed. He could imagine that and worse. Hex customers aren't known for their manners, he said. Couple of drug busts in the men's room, last of it for me, walled it off from this side, renting it out as a commercial stall on the other. Got a young kid doing tats in that space. Name's Ronnie. Seems like a good kid. Pays on time. Customers welcome to eat, drink, and party here. Take care of their other needs elsewhere. I've walked through some of those elsewheres, he joked. No entrance on this side to the tat place? Nah, registered as a separate location. This work is only for here. Okay, cool. 
So it's really just the one room. Kitchen looks secure, he said, pointing to the hand scanner on the door. That glass opening bulletproof? Yep, had that installed last year. So this the kind of job you take? I know your bounty, but was told you take freelance stuff too. You came highly recommended, just wasn't sure this was your kind of thing. As was his custom, John diligently tapped notes into his Moby glass. He preferred the palm-sized translucent version. It fit easily into any pocket, pants or jacket. He especially liked that if necessary, the display could be enlarged into an interactive holographic image. Noticing that Maggie had stopped talking, he looked up. His smile was genuine and raised his cherub-like cheeks high on his face. Dark curly hair rested on his forehead, just above a bushy unibrow that arched gently over gray eyes. I do most any security work on contract if I can fit it in comfortably. If I can't, I'll refer you to someone, he said, continuing to tap in notes. No point stressing to squeeze it in. Looking up, he said, or stressing you if I can't get here when needed. His face back on his Moby. I like to keep it simple. Works best that way. Maggie nodded her head, still uncertain if that meant he was taking the job or not. Okay. John James, plain name, simple life is my motto. Uh, sure was all Maggie could think to say. He closed the Moby and gave Maggie his full attention. Looks like I can fit you in. Friday and Saturday from 10 p.m. until close, which is 2 a.m. Right. He walked away from Maggie to survey the space for himself. I'd like to install security cameras in each section. Maggie walked toward the card tables where John had wandered over to. How much does that cost? He chuckled. My expense, if we can agree, I can take emergency calls when the place is quiet. He saw her eyebrows arch and smiled. Only local emergencies. I discount for the time I'm out. He sauntered back to the front and leaned on the bar. Cameras are my eyes and ears. Also solid evidence if you insist on pressing charges. I prefer to work things out in other ways, but here, you're the boss. Concern in her voice, she asked, You expect that to happen often? Being away during my shift? Never know. Just a precaution. This is side work for me. Filler. Routing pirates and vagrants are my main meal ticket. I'm a senior security and bounty contractor for Hurston, Crusader, and Art Corp. I get first dibs around here, so that's my priority. If I don't take a gig, I lose it, and eventually get bumped down the ladder for new work. His tone was light, his voice even. Maggie came to stand beside him. I don't know, I had trouble a few days ago, which is why I started asking around. She wrung her hands. It got pretty intense. I need those hours covered. Place is getting rowdy. Station's been seeing more traffic lately. Some looking for work or to shop, others for trouble. John reached out and took one of Maggie's hands in his. He patted it like they were old friends. I hear ya. Totally understand. 
Humming quietly to himself, he flipped open his Moby. Let me shoot you a couple names. Either one of these will do just as well. He returned to humming while he scrolled through his contacts. Neither are A-level cause they'll have the same problem as me. Local cop work comes first. His head bobbed slightly to the tune that only he could hear. Oh, I hadn't realized. I just asked around about who's best. That'd be me, he said absentmindedly. Here you go, try. Maggie cut him off. Several said you're the best and actually a good guy. Everyone said that, good guy. I try, Maggie dear, I do try. I keep it simple. Live right, it'll be all right. That's my motto. Well, if you think it'll work, she still hesitated. I'm up for giving it a try. He looked up again and graced her with the full force of his penetrating gaze and smiled. Trust me, it'll be fine. Wouldn't steal you wrong. Do no harm is my motto. Maggie caught her breath. Well, damn, she thought to herself. His eyes actually do sparkle. To him, she said, send the contract and I'll authorize it. John pointed his Moby at Maggie and swiped his finger from it to her. There you go. Oh, sorry. Don't have a mobile one. We'll pick it off the one in the office. No worries. Can you start this week? He extended his hand and Maggie accepted it. Sure can. We'll install the cameras on my first shift. She hoped she wasn't blushing. He was too young for her. He wasn't even particularly handsome. But there's something about him, she decided inwardly. Pleasure doing business with you, Mags. Off to do my rounds. John slid his hands into his jacket pockets and sauntered toward the exit. Over his shoulder, he added, Don't hesitate if something comes up before then. You're one of John's now. I'll come as quick as I can. Maggie patted the sides of her hair and wiped gently at the edges of her eyes as if that could erase the heavy crow's feet nesting there. Okay, sure. Thanks. Her voice cracked on the last and John gave her a knowing smile. She turned away, her cheeks flaming. Now for the main event, John said to himself. He checked the work queue on his Moby to verify that the Happy Cube eviction request he'd received earlier was still active. It was. Maggie's pub was at the back of Hex D, one of the cleanest struts on the space station. A work request in Hex A, the worst. The quickest way there would be through the tunnels. The tunnels, as they were called by the locals, are a network of secured maintenance routes burrowed into the giant asteroid turned mining station housing exchange, now a self-governing powder keg. A handful of legit merchants had stayed after the Imperial Green mining operation pulled out. Having invested their life savings in establishing businesses here, they couldn't afford to pack up and run when the mines dried up and the criminal element began infiltrating the station, trying to secure a foothold in Stanton. Industrious opportunists stayed too. They'd squatted in available spaces, installed personal generators, and opened for business. 
Imperial retained control of the self-service Habit Cubes and continued to collect the revenue. But everything else on the station was an as-is situation. No maintenance, no repairs. When things stopped working on Grimhex, they stopped working forever. John whistled as he made his way to the closest maintenance tunnel. He unlocked the massive vault-like door with his access code. As the door retracted, he ducked his six-foot-four stocky frame through the opening. It was pitch black on the inside. He pulled out the flashlight he kept clipped to his belt. With no maintenance crews on the station, lighting in the tunnel was spotty. A good distance ahead, he could see a pinprick of yellow light flickering. He panned his flashlight around and forward to get his bearings. The jagged walls of the tunnel glistened with sweat. Rusted pipes overhead led the way forward. They hissed angry pockets of steam from cracked wounds. John started walking, his boots echoing his every footstep. Although it would be at a reduced payout, John hoped the occupants had voluntarily vacated by now. The request was two hours old. He'd get his 25% fee for swiping in at the location as evidence he checked it out. It would be easier on everyone if they were gone by now. He was getting hungry besides. Persuading vagrants to depart on their own was his preferred solution. Convincing would-be pirates to vacate the area with words or by force better than disabling, capturing, and hauling them planetside for processing. Every day flying free above the rock is a good day, was his motto. Seasonal supplies and the mandatory annual physical required by his contract were the only times John went planetside. He hated the crowds at the medical clinic. He fidgeted waiting in lines at the surplus warehouse where he bought non-perishable food supplies. He grunted trying to maneuver around other customers, picking through clothing haphazardly tossed into final sale bins. But the streets were the worst, especially on Art Corp. The teeming throngs of yakkers brushing by and bumping into him at every turn. It made his skin crawl to be scurrying among them on the anthill. John was almost at the other end now. He could see the door clearly from here. He pulled his Gemini L86 from the back waistband and checked the magazine. It was full. He reached down and grabbed a fresh magazine from the bottom right pocket of his cargo pants. He put away the flashlight. Just before stepping through the exit, he slid the pistol into his right jacket pocket and the fresh mag into his left. He emerged from the tunnel and waited until the door locked behind him. Strut A was quiet, fewer people than normal around. He wondered why, but kept it moving. He nodded to a group of guys decked out in grunge gear, hunched around a glass vial of red smoke. Red Alice, he mused to himself, a popular psychotropic drug that caused temporary paralysis when overdosed. Just beyond the group of men was the metal-graded staircase to the next level. John took the steps two at a time, then turned left into Strut A Shantytown, a dead end of the lowest-rate habit cubes perfumed in eau de urine. With no merchants on this side, there was no one to complain or pay for security to keep the place civil. 
The cube he was looking for was second to last on the left. As he approached, he saw a bloody trail leading to the door. Drops of blood on the gray slab floor like breadcrumbs led the way. A bloody palm smeared on the door frame. He eased his pistol out of his pocket and moved into the shadows along the opposite wall. John slipped from shadow to shadow until he was across the aisle from Habicube A-19. To prevent the security system from locking them out of the room, the delinquent guests had placed a metal object at the base of the sliding door to keep it open. His pistol locked and loaded, he crossed to the other side, flattening himself against the wall to the left of the door. He heard an argument brewing inside. There were two distinct voices. The man's voice was agitated and traveled from side to side as if he was pacing. The woman's voice was hushed and nearer to the door. Her responses were clipped and defiant. The man. We need to find a ride out of this rat trap. That bitch is starting to smell. We need a plan before you get us both killed, the woman replied. Don't have much time. Room money's run out. Someone might be on the way, even in this dump. Need to get moving. Resolved, he said, yeah, let's get moving. Pass, I'd rather take my own chances. Suit yourself, he said. I'm better alone. You've been useless anyhow. She laughed at him with a hint of loathing. Too bad you can't fly a ship even if you manage to steal one, she said smugly. There is that. Guess that means you're coming with me. No, I'm not, she replied mutinously. That's not sounding friendly, John thought to himself. Sensing that the scene he was hearing play out was about to escalate, he leaned forward to peek through the door opening. The room was steeped in filth. Empty food and beverage containers littered the floor. The woman had her back facing the door. She was in a stained and perspiration-soaked halter top and jeans. Her brown hair was cut short and plastered to her scalp. The man was tall, lanky, bald-headed, and wore what looked like a prisoner's uniform. He was standing in the far right corner next to the bed inset into the wall. Blood-soaked sheets covered a lump on the bed. You wouldn't have made it this far without me. I'm calling the shots. The man raised a pistol toward the woman, handcuffs swinging from his wrist. John had a clean shot if he could quickly thrust his hand in the opening. He hesitated for a moment considering his options. As though the man's sixth sense of being watched had kicked in, he turned his head in John's direction and their eyes locked. The man pivoted his weapon in John's direction and leaped toward the door. Whether to close it or grab the woman as a shield, John couldn't know. What he did know was that he couldn't let this door close. John thrust his hand through the door opening while simultaneously dropping to the ground and began firing. The muzzle of the Gemini flared and smoked with each recoil. 
the woman who'd been standing fell to her knees screaming. Had she been hit? Couldn't worry about that now. John pulled back using the door as cover. Continuing to advance, the man screamed obscenities as he was hit. Not taking me, fuck you, you're gonna die. John kept firing. Inside the room, blood splatters rained like confetti. Inches away from him, the man's body finally fell forward, his skull hitting the slab floor with a sickening crack. John vaulted to a standing position. He pressed his shoulder through the door, forcing it to open while reloading his pistol. Station security, he said with authority. Training his pistol on the woman, he shouted, Don't move! Looking down at her, he doubted she'd move. She was in a ball, sobbing hysterically. When the woman calmed down enough to speak, John asked her her name. She didn't answer immediately. Leaning against the wall opposite her, he waited patiently for her to respond. Trying to regain her composure and pointedly looking away from the corpse on the floor, she said, Diane, Diane Shay. What happened here? This guy kidnap you? Diane's pupils were dilated, black orbs in a milky white sky. It never occurred to her to lie. Her voice was unsteady as she spoke. No, no, not really. She wiped at the mascara-stained tears leaving black tracks down her face. We were on a slave ship heading to Ken's. Incredulous, John replied, Wait, what? Nah, not legal in UEE space, not even to transport. Going to have to sell me something else, sister. Tell me straight, and I'll be straight. That's my motto. I was in Yulin with, guess you'd call him my boyfriend. Guess I knew he was running a scam. He was taking bets on Sadaball. Things didn't work out. We ran a bill up at the hotel we were staying at, and he skipped out on it and me. Her voice trailed off. And? And what? He left me there sleeping. I couldn't pay it. No one to call to ask to pay it. She shrugged her shoulders. Sentenced to three months indentured service. She inhaled deeply and shook her head back and forth. Like that shit wasn't bad enough. The assholes transporting us decided they could get more for the women if they sold us on the black market instead of transporting us. The pain in her voice was too authentic to doubt. John eased up and prodded her gently to continue. Kins, huh? How'd you get here? Ronnie, she glanced at the corpse on the floor, then averted her eyes again. He hatched a plan to get us all out, if someone could fly the ship. She paused, transfixed by the blood on her hands. Suddenly revolted, she began scrubbing her palms up and down on the front of her jeans. John's voice broke her out of her trance. And? And I can fly. A little. 
Enough to get us in the air, anyway. Autopilot somewhere safe? John grunted. Diane took it as disbelief. She briefly looked up at him. I'm a dropout of many things. One of those things being civilian flight training. Diane explained that when they realized the ship was stopping for fuel in Stanton, they'd hatched a plan to lure one of their captors into the female holding cell. Lara, an unlicensed prostitute who they'd snatched, volunteered to be the bait since she was dressed for the part. Things hadn't gone to plan. The guard was small, but put up a huge struggle. After someone grabbed his key and let Ronnie out of his cell, he'd killed the guard. Things went from bad to worse after rushing the cockpit ended at a standoff. Hoi Shi was hit and died instantly. The pilot biolocked the controls while returning fire and quantum jumped to here. Diane's voice was steadier. We think he also called for backup. Ronnie said we needed to run and take our chances. So we did. He grabbed what he could on the way out, anything we might be able to sell quickly. Lara was hit. I found the med kit and a coat to throw over her to hide the injury. How many of you were there? John interrupted. Four? Me, Ronnie, Lara, and Hoishi. Diane cupped her face in her hands. No one was supposed to die just wanted to get out of there. John looked at the bloody bundle on the bed. That Lara? Yes. Ronnie sold what he grabbed to rent this room and get some food. I tried, did what I could, but I'm no medic. When we couldn't stop the bleeding, I gave her all the pain meds to stop her screaming. It was making Ronnie crazy. He started shouting and threatening to drag her off and dump her. A shudder ran through Diane from head to toe. I gave her all the pain meds in the kit and held her hand until she was quiet. You mean until she was dead? Yes, until she was dead. Diane's legs were starting to cramp. She stood cautiously, raising her hands up when she saw John put his hand on the pistol, protruding from his waistband. Oh, what happens now? There are dead people here. Someone has to answer for that. The ship you arrived on could still be here. More dead bodies? He shook his head in disgust. When you're looking for trouble... You find it, I always say. John looked Diane up and down, seeing if she had any pockets. You armed? No. Never had a weapon. Was lookout in the cargo hold. I saw what happened in the cockpit on the remote camera. Pleading in her voice, she said, I just want to go home. Can't you just let me go? They were going to... Bile rose in her throat. She clamped both hands over her mouth and swallowed it back down. Wrapping her arms around herself, she said, It's not right what they were going to do. No, it's not right. Fucking scum, he spat. 
Delinquent checkout for this room was logged for security check. There are bodies here that have to be accounted for. Do they? Do they what? John asked. Have to be accounted for. John rounded on her. You were looking for trouble and found it. Don't you think Lara's family deserves to know she's dead? What about this Hoishi person? I don't know what Ronnie's story was, but he might have someone who'd like to know the same. He was a drifter and a thief. This was his third stint doing time, he said. Got no tears for him. Deflated, she exhaled a sigh that completely emptied her lungs. Look, under the circumstances, you'll probably be set free after the investigation. After this, kind of scared to take my chances, know what I mean? John knew exactly what she meant. Everything would be hearsay about who'd done what. A lawyer friend once told him that if there's a body, there's a trial. People feel safer if someone's feet are held to the flame when there's a corpse. In this case, though, the ship logs could validate the story of being picked up in Yulin and a destination being set for Kins that was later altered, diverting them to Stanton. But the deaths within Stanton jurisdiction, they'd want someone's hide for those. Right or wrong, examples were often made to make the next person think twice. I feel for you, kid. Games turn to this. He flipped open his Moby glass and set the status of the eviction request to completed. He'd finish the official report later. For now, he wanted to prevent anyone else from being assigned to the case since he was already on site. John turned his thoughts to the unpleasantness ahead. He'd have to secure the prisoner and take her planet side for processing. Turning to Diane, he said, I'm going to have to cuff you. He saw panic in her eyes. I am not going to hurt you. Don't do this, she pleaded. It's not right. Not my fault, she said, her voice rising. Fuck those guys. If we hadn't stopped them, they were going to sell us. You're right. Absolutely right. But it's not my job to make those judgments. He said this moving forward cautiously. Live right, it'll be all right, just doing my part of the job. Local authorities will do the rest. Diane dropped her head and her shoulders sagged, resigned to her fate. When John was in front of her and about to ask her to turn around so he could cuff her, a thought occurred to him. Where was he taking her? Grim Hex was in the Crusader vicinity, but not managed or policed by that corporation. His official contract on Grimhex was to evict delinquent guests and prevent damage to the functional habicubes. This situation no longer fits that scenario. Diane was certainly willing to leave, and wasn't that his first course of action? Mutually beneficial agreement to vacate? He couldn't imagine the ream of paperwork associated with reporting this situation. Damn, he'd be planet side for hours and that's after figuring out where to even take her. He reached to pull handcuffs out of his back pocket, but paused mid-action. 
Can you get out of here if I let you go? What? Diane looked up in confusion. If I cut you loose, can you get off this station? Anyone you can call for transport? Diane brought a hand up to her mouth, thinking her eyes darted back and forth. Finally, she said, no, not really. Dejection in her voice. Shit. Exasperated, John said, can't leave you here. We'll end up in more trouble or worse. Grasping at straws, Diane offered, I can find work real quick or work for a seat on a ship out of here. This isn't that kind of station. Little to no work here, but lots of trouble. It's only a few steps away from anarchy. Oh, should have guessed. Little we saw, this place is a dump. An idea occurred to her, a small ray of hope. Could you maybe help me? I find a way to pay you back, I swear. Not really my thing. I like to keep things simple. Don't ask for favors, don't do them. Keeps everything on a level playing field. Oh, I see. Well then just let me go, I'm not your problem. John considered this option. He wondered how he'd feel if the next he heard of her, she was a corpse on Grimhex, or worse. He did believe there were things worse than death out on the cold black of space. Even if you can find work here, you can't earn enough for a place to stay while saving to get out of here. He didn't mean to direct it at her, but there was a bit of agitation in his voice. This was becoming the opposite of keeping it simple, and he had other work requests to process. That's not your problem. You think I was headed to a luxury hotel? Sleeping in a stairwell is better than that. Diane flinched when John suddenly took two strides and was suddenly next to her. When she realized that she wasn't his target, she moved out of his way. John entered his authorization code into the keypad on the door. A small panel slid open, revealing an LCD display. He accessed the room's status sheet and set the occupancy rating to non-functional. Cause, safety hazard, air purification unit irregularities. Access permissions, security and maintenance only. He closed the panel and turned to Diane. I've set the room to inoperable until it's been repaired. I'll call the local search and rescue authority to collect the bodies. After that, you can stay here while you're working on getting off the station. Diane's mouth fell open. Really? How much time does that give me? How long till a repair crew shows up? Forever. Nothing gets repaired on Grimhex. The company that owns these Habit Cubes collects revenue that's readily collectible, and that's it. No maintenance crews. Shops are locally owned and maintained. But I don't advise overstaying your welcome. Lots of trouble to be had, especially on this strut. A small bit of relief came over Diane's face. She closed her eyes and inhaled. When she opened them, 
She looked into John's eyes and tentatively reached for his hand. John let her grab his hand and give it a shake. Thank you. I won't be troubled. We'll be out of here as fast as I can. She crossed her right hand over her heart. Trust me, I've learned a scary lesson. Out of here as soon as I'm able. To her, he said, sure thing. Do right and it'll be all right. Remember that, okay? She nodded her head in agreement. How will I go in and out? Going to take you to a friend of mine. Nice woman. Get you a meal and maybe she has... He looked at her blood and dirt-stained clothes. Something you can wear for now. In the meantime, I'll get you a key card that accesses this Habicube. With any luck, the bodies will be clear before you come back. Hopefully, an acquaintance of mine is working search and rescue. I'll slip her their names. The corpse retrieval team will clean up the biofluids, too. That's a public health hazard. As for the rest of this mess, you're on your own. John opened his Moby. You know Lara's full name or anything that might help ID her? Lara Billingsley. Think she was a runaway from way back. She mentioned Earth several times. The others? Sorry, no. Hoishi was pretty quiet the whole time. Calm compared to me and Lara. She didn't say much. Got the impression this wasn't her first run-in with being detained by the Banu. What about the ship you were on? Need to see if it's still here. Was a rigged up Cutlass Black? Had the name Viper's Den painted on it. I heard them mention holding up in Spider after they collected on us. The horror of the past few events washed over her, raising goose pimples on her flesh. Hugging herself, Diane said, Sorry, that's all I know. It's a start. Come on, let's get you out of here for a while. I'll flag the bodies for emergency pickup to move things along. Maggie looked up from wiping down the bar to see John walking through the door with a bedraggled young woman at his side. She recognized the jacket the woman was wearing as the one she'd seen on John earlier. This looks interesting, she mused to herself. When the pair reached the bar, she said, Didn't expect to see you back here today. Wasn't part of my day's plans either, Mags. This here's Diane. Turning to Diane, he said, This is Mags, the friend I was telling you about. Rated a friend already, Maggie said. I'll take that as a compliment. You are, and it's meant to be one. Maggie smiled. She was instantly charmed again, even though she felt a request for a favor coming. Nice to meet you, Diane. Same, Diane said in a low voice. I need a favor, Mags. Happy to help if I can. John relayed the events that had happened since she'd last seen him. He hoped the retelling of it and the choices he'd made wouldn't offend her. He was glad not to see any condemnation in her expression as she listened. Unbeknownst to John, Maggie would never have reacted that way. She'd been around too long and had seen too much to be shocked by what he'd told her. In fact, she was happily surprised that he'd decided to help Diane and didn't seem in character for him to skirt the law being a man of specific values and dictums. 
She was glad he'd bent his rules this time. Maggie showed Diane into the employee restroom to clean up and change into a pair of overalls she kept in her office. She made her a plate of food to eat now and an extra to take with her. She suggested Diane eat and rest a bit in her office while the rest was being worked out. John and Maggie were sitting at the far end of the bar having a drink. You did the right thing, I think, Maggie offered. I can give her a couple of hours a day of work in exchange for food or credits, whichever she prefers. I'll also put out the word with folks that I trust. You're the best, Mags. You're a good guy, John. People told me you were, and they were right. You mean a good guy as in violating my contract by falsifying the condition of the Habakube, getting a stranger a key code to live there free, lying about how I knew the dead girl's name? He shook his head, thinking about what he'd done. Life's not always black and white, John. She interrupted his ready reply. I know, I know. You have your way of doing things. That's all well and good when it's possible. She put her hand on his shoulder and waited until she had his full attention. You are a good man, J.J. In this situation, it was the right thing to do. John smiled and shrugged his shoulders in acquiescence. If you say so, Mags. I do, because even good people paint outside the lines sometimes. The End Bryony's Dilemma Bryony, the protagonist from this story, is named after an intern who worked with us one summer. She was bubbly, sweet, and quite fearless. Contrary to the conventional wisdom of her family, she was chasing a dream to work in a narrow field of employment while living in a very tiny town. With her father being an executive and our company's commitment to hiring our interns after graduation, she could have easily landed a good job. But that wasn't what Bryony wanted. She'd chosen a different path, and I always thought well of her for doing so. The story itself started with me wondering what life might be like for low-wage workers caught in the grinding wheel of a megacorporation like ArtCorp. What does near poverty look like in the year 2942? How do young people recover from mistakes when family and friends are billions of miles away? Bryony's Dilemma by Aliciana Noir Art Corp, Area 18, Outside Sleep Pod Barracks Number 21 Fog laps at the edges of a dimly lit street. Debris turns to mush in shallow pools of rain. Vermin scurry, snatching morsels from overflowing trash bins. A neon marquee flickers intermittently, then fades to black before restarting. Letters scroll by identifying Pod Barracks 21, a row of nondescript cement towers. You're asleep inside Sleep Pod 16, 
Over the hum of the air recycler, you hear the rat-a-tat of raindrops pelting the pavement outside. Ugh, just what you need. Your chest rumbles when you breathe. You shiver and wipe beads of sweat off your forehead. Not yet. More sleep. Exhaustion drags you back under. Your eyelids clamp shut. Heavy as a stone, you plummet into blackness. Time stands still until... Beep, beep, beep. A loud beeping ricochets around the pod. You flay a hand over your exposed ear as if swatting a mosquito. Yawning, your wits begin knitting themselves back into place. Alarm clock. You groan. Your stomach grumbles. From muscle memory, you whack the button on the panel overhead. Silence. Ah, sweet, sweet snooze. Curling into a ball, you grab a fistful of blanket and drift back to sleep. Precisely 15 minutes after hitting the snooze button for the second time, your sleeping palate begins to vibrate. Muscles and joints protest. You groan, but can't afford to be late. Gingerly, you roll over onto your back, turn off the alarm, and flip on the lights. You take a moment to wake up more fully and gain your bearings. You're in a stark white, claustrophobia-inducing fiberglass tube. Pinpricks in the ceiling cast diffused light. Cubby holes of varying sizes line the curved side walls. Your UEE dog tag and Moby glass are in the cubby closest to you. Yesterday's uniform and work boots are in a heap at your feet. Propped on an elbow, you grab your dog tag and slip it over your head and clip your Moby glass to your wrist. You inch toward the pod's entrance by sliding on your butt. Before deactivating the door lock with your heel, you check to make sure that your PJs is still snapped shut. The pod door hisses as it retracts. You scoot into a sitting position, your legs dangling out over the edge of the sleeping pod. Your slippers are hanging on a nearby hook. You mindlessly put them on while rummaging in the wardrobe inset in the wall on your right. You hop down into the growing throng of residents prepping for the 0500 shift change. They're in various states of undress. You nod mourning to familiar faces, fellow transients and low-wage workers at an industrial facility or landing dock here on ArtCorp. You check that you have everything you need to get going. A bathroom kit is wedged under your right arm, work boots attached by their laces slung over the opposite shoulder. A freshly laundered uniform is on a hanger in your right hand. When you turn to head toward the restrooms, you see Naomi. Punctual to a fault, she's already dressed in the drab and common olive-colored jumpsuit you all wear. Waving a hand back and forth, you croak out her name once, twice. Naomi! Naomi! It takes her a moment to figure out who's calling her name. When she realizes it's you, she smiles and heads your way. What's doing? Her voice is light and cheerful. Curse her, it's too early to be so chipper. Nothing much, heading to the salt mines. You hold up your uniform as evidence. She laughs. Ouch, still shuffling crates? You nod in disgust. Her mouth puckers as if tasting something sour. Damn, short an experience, but you've got certs. You're seized by a coughing fit just as you're about to reply. 
you have to clear your throat a couple of times before you can speak again. Tell me about it. As your coughing continues, her face takes on a yikes look. That sounds nasty. She mockingly takes a step back. Taking anything? Didn't want to spend the creds. Trying to get out of this dump. At least get a real room. She laughs. You and me both. She adopts a more serious tone. Still salty, I never got moved into the manager dorms like my contract says. But who the hell am I going to complain to? You rub your throat, which is starting to burn. Exactly. I don't push because it could be worse. We dropped a hundred freshies last week. No warning. No free ride off the world like the contract says. They're basically screwed. Punching you on the shoulder, she adds. These days, steady creds, couple of meals, and a bed is the dream. Pointedly looking around, you reply in disgust. Yeah, it's the dream, all right. Inside, you're disappointed with yourself and your situation. Most of all, your stupid choices that landed you here in the first place. Naomi's voice pulls you out of your reverie. Checking her movie glass, she says, Better get moving. Don't be late. I'll catch you later. You nod in agreement and turn to walk away. As an afterthought, over your shoulder you call out, Grub later? Sure, meet you at the G after the shift. The wait in line for an all-in-one restroom cube was less than five minutes. With the exception of a small mirror above the pull-out wash basin, the interior and all of the fixtures are made of stainless steel. You pull out the toilet to relieve yourself. The smell of the disinfectant used to gag you, but you're used to it now. You wash your hands, face, and splash water under your arms. That's as good as it's getting today. Brushing your teeth, you take a long look in the mirror. You look exactly how you feel. Your cheekbones are more pronounced, body leaner, arms more defined. Wide-eyed wonder has been replaced by dark rings of harsh reality. You run a hand through your severely short haircut. It suits the new you that's evolving. You aren't the same person who eagerly waved goodbye to parents, a comfortable home, and a scholarship because I need adventure in my life before settling down. Come on, Dad, I need to sow some oats. Unfortunately, having your business associates steal your ship, stranding you on Art Corp, wasn't precisely the sowing you had in mind. No way you're going to message home for a handout. Can't hit up your friends either, all of whom are at university with tight pockets of their own. You're better than these first few mistakes. Pointing a finger at the reflection in the mirror, you assert, if Granny made it out here on her own, so can I. Through bouts of coughing, you slide into your jumper and put on work boots. You chuck the paper slippers into the recycler and ball up your PJs. Dressed in a clean uniform, you feel a little bit better. You stop by your sleeping pod to grab a plastic laundry bag. The front of the bag is stamped with your UEEID barcode. You shove yesterday's uniform and PJs into the bag. Heading toward the back entrance, you drop the laundry bag down the chute and brace yourself for the weather as you exit the barracks. Towering industrial buildings box you in on all sides, stealing the meager sunlight of an overcast sky. The air is thick with moisture. 
You shiver as a clammy breeze snakes down the collar of your jumpsuit. You check your Moby. Good. Just enough time to make a quick trip to the Area 18 med unit. As much as you loathe the idea of spending credits, you can't see how you'll make it through the day without something. You mutter to yourself as you approach the medical unit. Better not be crowded. Tan walls, shiny floors, and uncomfortably bright lights. They're all the same, medical units. A twinge starts in the pit of your stomach as you enter the triple-wide sliding glass doors. They hiss and whoop as they retract. You wrinkle your nose at the potent antiseptic smell. Instantly, your mind is transported to five years earlier, when you and your parents were frequent visitors of the hospice facility your grandmother was in. Days turned into weeks of visiting every day, watching and waiting for her to die. She lived to a ripe old age, feisty and fearless, roaming the galaxy in a souped-up science ship with Granddad. She even kept at it when he was gone. Seeing her crippled and defeated by age was hard to watch. The remembered loss grabs you by the throat, threatening to suffocate you, the pain of it as lethal today as it was then. Through the throng of people milling around while waiting to be seen, you spot the quick meds dispenser and hurry across the waiting room. Eyes front, you block out everything else around you except the display case. Your nose pressed to the glass, you scan the medical options. What the hell? This is crazy! You contemplate not buying anything. You can tough it out another. Before you can finish that thought, you're seized by a hacking cough that nearly doubles you over. That seals it. You can't afford to be dismissed from the shift altogether. These prices are freaking space lane robbery. You choose a moderately priced antibiotic and a low priced cough suppressant. A 60-40 mixture stem should do it. After confirming your purchase and authorizing payment, the dispenser begins to whir. You hear faint, metallic clicking noises. You anxiously tap your fingers on the glass while watching the progress meter inch toward ready. When it's done, a metal drawer slides open from the bottom of the dispenser. You grab the package and go. On your way out of the sliding glass doors, you pop the top off the stem, exposing the head with its pin cushion of needles. You quickly jab it into the left side of your neck. Wincing, you say, this shit better work. Walking briskly through the growing crowd of pedestrians, you arrive at loading dock J42 with a few minutes to spare. You hurry up the stairs, turn right, and swipe your ID to open the security gate. A freelancer Max is parked on the landing pad. Quasar is painted with gold metallic swirls encircling the letters like a tornado. You recognize the ship and its captain. He unloads cargo here a few times a week. The Quasar is one of the smaller ships you can expect to be unloading today. With its elongated forward cabin, slightly bigger than the neck on which it rests, the Lancer has always reminded you of pictures you've seen of tortoises found on Earth. Not an attractive shape for a ship in your eyes, but you're not going to complain by starting with a small ship today. You walk forward to join your co-workers who are standing around Zone Manager Roderick. You put on your work gloves as he begins speaking. 
He's a no-nonsense ex-military guy with a booming voice. Listen up. He waits for silence. We have a newly registered Connie arriving on platform J-45. It's going to take a bit longer to process this one. To stay on schedule, I'm going to switch things up. Roderick checks his Moby before continuing. I'm leaving a few freshies behind here to process the Max. This one's business as usual, boys. He points over his shoulder to the man standing by the ship's cargo bay. You all know Captain Shuzen. You look to where Roderick is pointing to see the captain talking in a huddle with his crew. Roderick checks his Moby again and begins calling out names. Bryony as cargo inspector. What? What? That's you. You hesitate. When you don't move, Roderick looks up and calls your name again. Co-workers standing nearby give you the, are you stupid look? You gain your composure. Sir, yes sir, I'm here. You separate from the crowd and walk forward. Thomas, the actual inspector for J-42, gives you a what the fuck look. You shrug in his direction. Roderick calls out the rest of the assignments. Thomas has been assigned to lead the team processing the new Connie. Damn, you're jealous of that one. You'd rather be unloading crew and getting a chance to see inside of a Connie than leading the team processing a tortoise. When all said and done, you have three cargo movers assigned to you. You're a little bit excited since this is your first time leading a crew. Roderick hands you the Inspector Moby and says, You know your way around this, right? You nod your head. Yes, sir. He continues. The ship manifest, travel log, and cargo list are all loaded. I want this done quickly. An Aurora CL is scheduled to touch down in 30. I want the Max gone before it arrives. Everyone nods their head. As Roderick is about to step away, Thomas comes forward. Sir, I think I should stay here to help make sure this gets processed quickly. I can walk Bryony through it and join the J-45 team right after. Roderick looks surprised, but not annoyed by the interruption. Bryony can handle it. I need you with the other team. The first time for a new captain or new ship is a full inspection, as you well know, he says with an admonishing tone. It's going to take more time, and I'm not having my schedule jacked up over it. Thomas starts to speak again, but Roderick cuts him off. Is there a problem? You look at Thomas quizzically, wondering, What's your problem, man? There's a long silence. Thomas's eyes cut toward the max. You and Roderick both notice and look in that direction, too. Thomas looks away quickly. No, nothing. Just trying to make sure regular customers get good service. Roderick claps Thomas on the back. Captain Chuzin's not going anywhere. He'll forgive us a hiccup or two. Looking pointedly at you, he adds, but that's not going to happen is it? You stand up a little straighter and add a little bit of bass to your voice. No, sir. It'll be like clockwork, sir. Excellent. Roderick slaps you on the shoulder and walks away with Thomas, his shoulder slumped, trailing behind. Scanning through the manifest, you notice a discrepancy between the ship logs and the approved route plan. The log shows an unscheduled stop in Cathcart. Probably just an oversight, last-minute change of plans, you shrug. Around you, the team is preparing to unload cargo. 
Joey, a hefty bald guy in his early thirties, is hoisting himself into a mech suit. He handles the heavier crates. The suit hydraulics hiss and clank as he stretches and retracts the arms and tests rotating the hand clamps. The other two, Ron and Ayla, grab hover carts for the smaller crates. The platform vibrates under your feet as Joey lumbers toward the freelancer. You head toward Captain Shuzen. You approach the captain of the quasar, your hand extended in greeting. His meaty hand grabs yours and gives it a quick shake. Captain Chuzen's hair, wide sideburns, and beard are meticulously trimmed. His hands are callous-free with manicured nails. No bruises, no tats mar his skin. If not for the quasar jumpsuit, you'd mistake him for the office type, not a space trucker. Morning, Captain. I'm Bryony. I'll be overseeing your inspection and unloading today. Captain Chuzen is staring off in the direction Roderick and Thomas went. Where's Thomas going? He usually handles my ships. Keeps it quick, simple, suits our schedule. He's helping Roderick with a new Connie coming in on LZJ-45. Adding more confidence to your voice, you continue, we'll get you done just as fast. Distractedly, Captain Shuzen replies, Sure, kid. Let's get moving. Excellent. Flipping through the screens on the Inspector Moby, you continue. One thing to clear up first. You raise the Moby up so the captain can see the display. There seems to be a discrepancy between your ship log and your approved flight plan. You now have the captain's full attention, but his only reply is a grunt. You continue. It's showing an unscheduled stop in Cathcart. Ship appears to have docked at Spinward for roughly two hours. Isn't that part of your company's no-fly zone regulations? Rethinking how that might have come out, you say. Not that it's our business. We just have to perform a different kind of inspection. Shuzen's eyes narrow, and his silence makes you nervous, but you press on. Because of, you know, the kind of stuff that happens in unprotected space. Robberies, contraband. Emphasizing this isn't an uncommon situation, you say. Not a big deal on our end, just different forms, and can sometimes take a little longer. But we'll still get you out of here in about the same time as usual. Captain Chuzen is staring you up and down like sizing up an opponent. You don't want to be his opponent. You just want to get his work done quickly. Beads of sweat start forming on your forehead as the silence stretches out. Are the meds you took earlier wearing off? You wipe your forehead on the back of your sleeve. Clearing your throat, you suggest. Did you have an emergency? If you can just state the reason and add it to your official logs, I can resync and get the inspection rolling. Pointing toward the ship you add, we're already starting to unload. This really isn't a big deal. Like flipping a switch, the captain gives you a wry smile and puts his arm around your shoulder and pulls you in close. You're not pleased by the gesture, which violates what you consider your personal space, but you go with it since he's talking. You see, it's like this. He continues in a conspiratorial tone. Sometimes, when we're ahead of schedule, we like to take a break, blow off some steam, stretch our legs, have something better than space rations. His tone is nonchalant, 
we may wander off course a bit for the recreation. He steps back and waves his hand in a it's-not-a-big-deal manner and continues. No harm, no foul. You're surprised they could get away with that undetected. I mean, it's in the ship's logs. That's how you know they went to Cathcart. You scratch your head in confusion. But, Captain, that stuff shows up in the ship logs. Not by the time we go back for inspection, he laughs. Forgot to take care of it before hitting Stanton, in more of a hurry than usual. He flicks his thumb off the end of his nose and winks at you. You've got no reasonable response to that explanation, like, what the hell? But he cuts you off. You get paid extra to unload ships faster? No, sir. See what I mean? Me and the boys stopped in Cathcart for a bit of a stretch. Have a real meal, planet side. We don't report it because we don't want anyone getting the idea to add more stops on our route. Beaners love more work same pay, stiffing sieves like you and me. Your throat is starting to itch. You want to cough, but Captain Shuzen is still leaning in too close. You cough right in his face. Another beat of uncomfortable silence follows as you hold back your cough and really have no idea what to say to him. It's not even your job, kid. You want the hassle of more forms to complete? You clear your throat and swallow the urge to cough. Not really. I actually haven't seen those forms before myself, kind of above my pay grade. There's an echo of resentment in your voice. Shuzen seizes on it. See what I mean? That's my point exactly. More work, same pay. That last bit got you thinking that maybe he's right. You nod your head slowly at first. You're right. A little something extra for today could have replaced what you spent on medicine this morning or get you more to help you sleep better tonight or even maybe a full meal for a change. Is that really too much to ask, you say to yourself? But you're sure nothing extra is coming your way for acting as inspector on this ship. So you shrug your shoulders and concur. Like you said, not my real job anyway. Captain Chuzen claps you on the shoulder. What's your ID, kid? I'll shoot you some creds as a thanks. It's tempting, but you know that's strictly against regulations and could cost you your job if anyone found out. Shit as it is, it's still a job, and it's the company that should be compensating you for doing the extra work. Shaking your head, you say, no, not necessary. Let me hurry up with the inspection, then I'll validate the offloaded cargo and get you on your way. Relaxed and jovial, Shuzen replies, great, going to stretch my legs and throw back one at the G-lock. Buzz me when you're done. Sure thing, won't be long. Walking up the rear ramp into the primary cargo bay, you nod as you pass Joey. He's busy stacking three crates vertically on top of each other, and they're not lined up all that well. You wonder what he's about until you notice that Ayla is coming up behind you. Ayla's the new kid on the block. For a quick second, it stings that no one tries to get your attention anymore. But then you remember, you don't want that kind of attention anyway. Alia is still into being who she was before she landed here, the ass end of Stanton. Well, near it anyway. From what you've heard, Hurston is even worse with its pea soup smog and shortage of living accommodations. 
Rumor has it, workers have resorted to sharing sleeping cubes. You pull a face at the mere thought. You turn your attention back to Joey. If that falls and gets damaged, you better have another gig lined up. Rod will have your ass. Joey laughs and raises his voice unnecessarily. I got this, kid. Gonna help you get it in in record time. You know I'm the best mech operator we got. You watch Joey glance to the side to see if Alia is paying him any attention. She's not. She's stacking smaller crates over on the hover cart, scanning them as she goes. Realizing Alia isn't going to pay him any attention, Joey resumes his normal speaking voice. We do this super fast and maybe Rod will give you this zone. Stick Thomas somewhere else. While that would be music to your ears, if they officially bumped you up, why would Joey care? You ask him. Nice for me. Why do you care? Maneuvering himself down the ramp, he replies, I ain't gonna get it, and something about old Tommy boy don't sit right. Count close and see what you make of it. To yourself, you think, you're not really a fan of Thomas either. He's always hunched over like he's trying to fold in on himself. And there's something about his eyes. They're beady and always darting around like a trapped rodent. Beyond that, though, you don't know of any wrong that he's done. And what did Joey mean by that last comment? Count close. You want to ask him, but he's out of earshot now and there's no time to waste. You've got a job to do and just enough time to do it. You do a perfunctory scan of the main and secondary cargo bays, swiping the radar wand across the walls, ceiling, and floor as you go. When the door to the crew cabin swishes open, you're surprised by the cleanliness. The bunk beds inset into the walls on each side have been made, more or less. The random personal items stashed in the cubbies look fairly neat, and you're instantly jealous of the personal spectrum LCDs hung above each bed. Continuing to move forward, you notice that immediately after the sleeping berths, there is a toilet-shower combo on one side and a cramped single-counter kitchenette on the other. Standing in the middle of the aisle, you can almost touch the door to the commode and the food preparation station on the other side. That must make for some interesting situations. You thought your accommodations were small. You're not eating and shitting within arm's reach. But the truth is, you'd switch places in a heartbeat to get out of here. You continue casually scanning your surroundings. So far, the ship has a clean bill of health. You expect to encounter the same as you enter the flight deck. When the door opens onto the flight deck, you stand there for a moment, taking it all in. You remember the pride and elation of piloting your own ship. And this one is not too shabby. Not too shabby indeed. You might not like the look of the ship from the outside, but the interior is definitely winning you over. The flight deck contains four high-back cushy seats, perfect for long-hop travel. There's one for a pilot, co-pilot, and two additional passengers. The quasar's been around the verse a few times, but the components show very little wear and tear. They're substantial, meaty, like an oversized breakfast. Damn, you've always got food on your mind. You check the time on your Moby, still 15 minutes to spare. You step down to the pilot's seat and survey the instrumentation. You wistfully glide your hand above the controls. 
Feeling a bit audacious, you slide into the pilot's seat. The dash is massive, with slots for personal storage, a beverage holder, small firearms, whatever. The field of view reminds you more of a ground vehicle or passenger transport ship, but you sort of like it. The struts are thick and blocky, which makes sense for an industrial ship with a reputation of long, reliable years of service. Definitely a step up from the aurora that you got swindled out of, leaving you stranded on Art Corp, scrapping for survival. A call comes through on your Moby. You almost jump out of your skin. You answer, Bryony here. It's Joey. Cargo's in the transport hangar. Great, it's going good here. I'm coming out. You exhale, time to hop back to it. You walk briskly through the cabins, your footsteps echoing in the now empty ship. You break into a jog when you hit the rear exit ramp. You head over to the transportation hangar, just a fancy name for the section of the landing pad that has a protective tarp over it and is reserved for pickups. Two Arc Corp carrier trucks are standing by to collect cargo and transport them to their next destinations. Joey, still in his mech suit, is standing by the first stack of cargo. Record time, he brags. Stacked, scanned, and trans-ID'd. Need your SIG, and it's done. Cool. We killed it with time to spare. Thanks. You mock bump fists with his mech hand. As you quickly survey the piles, you notice one crate a good distance from the rest. Rowan and Alia are approaching. You point to the lone crate. To no one in particular, you ask... Why's that one all the way down there? Alia shrugs. Rowan and Joey look at each other. Joey answers. That one? The blue big box crate always goes there. Thomas has us separated out for special delivery. You screw up your face and cock your head to the side. Really? You don't recall having seen that in the past. Are you sure? Rowan and Joey nod in agreement. But that seems odd. Big Box is one of the more expensive and secure storage containers from Store All. They're tough specialty crates. They have a titan-grade metal exterior and a ribbed body skeleton and cushioned, super-enforced ablative rubber interior. They're used for special, fragile cargo, things that are really important. Still confused, you scan through the Quasar Cargo Manifest. Nothing but common ship components and raws. You don't see anything that would warrant the big box. Worse, you don't see the container itself listed in the inventory. So why is it here? Why is it being set aside? Noticing the consternation on your face, Roan shrugs his shoulders. Even through the padded jumpsuit you all wear, he looks starved, as if a sudden breeze would blow him off the platform. Been doing this for months, Bry. That crate from Quasar always goes there. You just never notice. You don't ever operate the mech suit or come up here to talk to Thomas while he's doing the sign-off. It's legit, according to him. He points his thumb over his shoulder. Just go with the flow. We're done with time to spare. Let's catch a quick break. Rod had a point. If you call it now, you'll beat the best unloading time for the Quasar for the quarter but something is itching at the back of your brain. Sure, you all take a break. I'll call it in. You check your Moby. Ten minutes left to spare. You watch the team walk away, chatting amongst themselves. Joey is pulling up the rear, clomping along in the mech suit. Just before entering the employee-only habicue that's next to the platform steps, Joey turns back to you. 
he puts a hand up in the air with his fingers splayed open, then starts folding them down one by one. You flip your hands palms up and shrug, what? Slowly, he pops each finger back down. Then it hits you. He's counting. Oh. Oh. Your eyes bulge. When he realizes you get his meaning, he shoots you a thumbs up and you do the same in return. Like puzzle pieces, things fall into place, forming an uncomfortable idea. An unscheduled stop. Thomas and Captain Chuzen concerned about who was going to do the inspection. An unlisted crate set aside for special delivery. You curse under your breath. Really? I need this shit? Then again, it doesn't have to be your problem if it's been going on for months. You can sign off and it will be business as usual. You walk over to the container. It's too big to sneak past passenger security, but small enough to fly under the radar of someone carting it off from here. You pass over it with the scanner. Nothing detected. You use your temporary inspector code to fiddle with the settings, changing it to a higher-grade scan. Still nothing. They could be using scan protection tech. Now the idea of taking the few extra credits Shuzan offered is sounding good. But are you that desperate? You note the chills are slowly starting to return as the meds you took this morning wear off. Still... Aren't these the same kind of people that tricked you into disengaging your ship's transponder code before stealing it and dumping you here? And if Shuzen and crew get caught, it will be too easy to trace if he's made payments to any art court personnel. That's not the kind of mess you want to get mixed up in. Sign off and mind your business. Whatever's inside is eluding detection by the equipment they gave you. Wash your hands of it. Maybe Roderick will suggest a little something be thrown your team's way for beating the standing record. Anything, any little gesture will help you out. On the Inspector Moby, you access the cargo authorization file for the Quasar. You tap it once to display the Inspector Outcomes section. You press your thumbprint in the Inspector Authorization Code slot. You inhale and hold your breath as your finger hovers over green for inspection pass. Your heart thuds in your ears as your finger is poised to tap the green button. At the last second, you slide it over and press yellow, failed, and then red, possible contraband detected. Feeling lightheaded, you back up and flop down on the nearest crate. Head in hands, you ask yourself, why, Bri, why? But you know the answer. Right is right and wrong ain't. Your Moby emits the three-beat signal for priority message. It's from Roderick. It reads, On my way with security, do not move. You're alone, sitting at a table in the back left corner of the G-Lock, a popular bar in Area 18. Well, the only bar, actually. You have a raggedy cap you grabbed out of the lost and found at work, pulled forward to obscure your face. The orange murky lighting helps you fade into the background of the bar. Your eyes unfocused, you stare at the holographic menu hovering above the tabletop. 
Music is booming, your leg is shaking, but not in time to the song that's blaring out of the speakers. Every time you hear the door swish open, you crane your neck forward looking for Naomi. Damn, she's usually punctual to a fault. Another group of loading dock workers saunter in. You look away and slouch down into your seat. Area 18 is a big place, but news like yours will travel quickly. Never in a million years could you have anticipated Roderick's reaction or what had ensued when he arrived with security in tow. Caught daydreaming, you're startled by the sound of someone flopping down into the seat opposite you. It's Naomi. Relief washes over you. Then you notice she's glaring at you with an oh-my-God look on her face. Clearly, she's heard something. No hello or a preamble. What the frack happened? She asks in a hushed tone. Then she leans in, waiting for a reply. You lean back, shaking your head. So you heard. Pretty sure most have. Went to your sleeping cube, saw goons hanging outside your door, then remembered we were meeting here. Well, that sucks. Not much in there worth having, but still. She looks like she wants to shake you silly. Well, what the hell happened? You inhale. I'm actually starting to think that I'm a bit of a drama magnet, you say with a wry smile. That puts a small one on her face, too. She crosses her arms, leans back into the booth. You just might be, she agrees. You probably already know that I got assigned as temporary inspector on J-42. Things were going good, finished early, except for two hiccups. The ship had an unplanned stop on Cathcart and an unlisted container. New ship? New crew? Nope, regulars. I initially fell for the excuse for the unscheduled stop. Naomi shrugs. It happens. Crew has things to do that aren't necessarily the company's business. Flying the company's ship? Another shrug. On time, cargo intact, who cares? Yeah, I can get with that, and I was willing to let that part slide, right up until I'm told that setting aside a particular container is a routine thing, something Thomas manages as a special request. Okay, now we're moving into shaky territory, she agrees. Exactly, so... But this is Art Corp. Who cares? Not like the Corp is doing us any favors. True. There's that. I'll give you that. And I nearly let that slide, too. It's Art Corp where fucking the likes of us over is on someone's daily to-do list. You lean forward. More intensity in your voice. But what happens if today of all days that special delivery gets policed in transit? and they track it back to the inspection. The possible ramifications dawn in Naomi's eyes. You'd be fracked as what? You nod in agreement, and then some. So at the last second, I called it in. Still don't understand how you ended up fired for it. Her mouth slants down, and she has a sour look on her face. It ain't right. 
I'm okay with how things turned out. In the end, anyway. You explain how Roderick had arrived in a near rage with the team of security. Joey, Roan, and Alia were coming back just as he showed up. Security put all of you in handcuffs and rushed you off the platform. You were frantic, not understanding what the hell was going on. When you tried speaking to Roderick, he told you to shut up until you were spoken to. You unconsciously rub your wrists, remembering the handcuffs. It was scary and embarrassing being dragged across Area 18 until we reached the security building. I bet. So what happened then? You continue your tale. You'd each been placed in a separate security holding cell. While you were anxiously waiting to speak to someone, anyone, you saw them marching in Thomas in handcuffs, and then the crew from the Quasar a short while later. But they hadn't been in restraints, and in fact seemed to be talking in a carefree manner with Roderick. That worried you. My stomach hit the floor when I saw Shuzen prancing in all full of confidence and Roderick seeming to eat it up. One by one, you saw your team escorted into what you realized later was an interrogation room. You were the last to be taken in and pushed none too gently into a metal folding chair across from a desk with two people on the opposite side, Roderick and a security officer. You explained what you'd seen and done in painstaking detail. You were questioned about your actions repeatedly. When they'd had enough, Roderick asked the security officer to leave the room. Once it was just the two of you, his face softened. He removed the handcuffs, pulled his chair next to yours, and sat down with a sigh. Rough day, kid, and you done good. A look of extreme confusion covered your face. I... I don't understand what's happening. I haven't done anything wrong. It's okay, kid. It's okay. We've had a drug smuggling problem for quite some time. We could occasionally catch the users, but not break into the syndicate managing the operation, or figure out how the narcs were arriving. Smiling, he said, you just gave us our first big break. He stood up and paced the small room while he talked. I doubt Art Corp would even care if not for the accidents caused by narked-up workers. It messes with their safety ratings and slows down production. You nod your head. You'd heard something about this. I'd heard about two guys losing a limb on the large engine assembly line. Scratching your head, you add, and last week... Wasn't there a construction worker who dropped a scaffolding down eight stories over there where they're building the new Galleria? Yeah, got the whole project temporarily put on hold until the safety investigation is over. Stuff like that costs the company hundreds of thousands of creds per incident, and it's adding up quickly. Oh, is all you can think to say. You're still shaken by what's happened. This whole dragging you all in here is for your own safety. We think the group working out of here is rather sophisticated, and we're after the big fish. We're going to be able to nail Shuzen, but we need to find 
who they work for, and who else is falsifying inspections. I want to protect you for, so here's what we're going to do. At this point, Roderick sat down next to you again. He dropped the managerial tone and spoke to you like a friend. He explained that he was going to have your inspection findings scrubbed from the record. He's going to claim that he and security had come by to do a spot check and found the crate themselves, which, by the way, was filled with vials of hallucinogenic narcotics. He's going to say that since it was your first time inspecting a shipment, you were running late and hadn't gotten to validating the offloaded cargo. For your own protection, your team was being given a company-paid transfer to another ARC facility with two weeks' bonus pay. He's leaving Thomas in place, even though they know he's on the smuggler payroll. But now that they know, they can use him to catch the next crew that comes in, and then they'll nab him. Wow, uh, okay, but don't you think they'll catch on? They may think something's up the first few months. They'll be bold enough to restart their operation. Plus, now we know what to look for at the other landing zones and can update the security procedures accordingly. What if they don't use Thomas again? Seems like he's going to get off the hook. We'll be keeping him under close surveillance, Roderick said with a smile. He's not conspiring with them for free, likely used to the extra income. Even if they don't seek him out, he'll no doubt contact them for extra work in due course. You nod your head in agreement. Gotcha. Nervously, you ask, What about me? Do I get the two weeks bonus and transfer option? Your guts twist. You want off this rock, but if it just means dropping you on another where you have to start over, that's not sounding so great. At least here you have a couple of friends and Naomi. The idea of slugging it out alone, again, is depressing. No, I have something different for you in mind. You stop for a moment to gauge Naomi's reaction. Her mouth is gaped open, her neck craned forward in rapt attention. You wonder if she'd miss you as much as you'd miss her. She has such an easy way about her, makes friends easily, always liked and well-respected. You, on the other hand, not so much. You're private, quiet, and often prefer the company of the ideas spinning around in your own head than conversing with others. You keep the friends you gain, but you don't gain new ones very often, which is by choice. You miss home, your friends off at university, and now you'll miss the few that you've made here, too. You sigh. Naomi kicks your foot under the table over your sudden silence. No stopping now, she exclaims. What's the plan for you? He's worried that the cartel would come around asking me questions and might not be that nice about asking them. They just lost a lot of credits having that crate confiscated. Yeah, those goons outside your door. Exactly. So I have to get gone too, but with a different kind of bonus. Her eyes widen in surprise, seeing the smile on your face. How much? She says in a near shout. Shh. 
noticing that the couple at the table next to you glance in your direction. You pull your cap down lower over your face. Oops, sorry, she giggles, and her excitement is infectious. You'd been trying not to be too excited, lest the rug get pulled out from under your feet. And you'd miss Naomi, unless... You lean across the table toward her and show her your UEC balance on your Moby. She gasps in surprise, her eyes growing wide. Now you're smiling too and giggling like a child. Whispering, she says, that's leave for good money. In awe, she adds, start over money. Wow, like wow. Or ship money for two? You let the question hang in the air. Naomi's eyes bug out and her eyebrows arch up to her hairline. Me? You take me? Of course. I wouldn't leave you behind. You've been a good friend to me. What would we do? Where would we go? What do you want to do? We can decide together. Your stomach twists, waiting for an answer. You want her to come, to help her out of this place. But you also have selfish reasons, too. You don't want to go back out into the black alone. You have more advanced skills than Naomi, but she's got the life experiences. In your mind, it would be a perfect mix. Naomi flops back into the booth. I need a drink and you're buying, she says with a smile. Holy shit. She sounds happy. Does that mean she's coming? That mean you're in, you ask outright. Oh yeah, I'm in. She nods her head several times for emphasis. Her eyes dart side to side as if working out a problem in her head. Maybe we get you off here tonight. Lay low somewhere cheap to make plans. Relief washes over you. Sounds good to me. Ever been to Terra? It's the most expensive ticket out of here, but lots of resources to figure out what you want to do next. That money won't get you set up in a place like Terra, but it will get you all the supplies you need for whatever. You correct her. The supplies we need. The idea of it makes you giddy and lightheaded. Yeah, what we need, she laughs. Holy frack, I can't even, like, holy shit. We're out of here. Maggie Schlotz, Origin Story When I decided that Maggie needed an origin story, I set aside the first thing that came to mind. Usually, it is the first appearance of them to me that defines them in my fiction. However, in this case, I wasn't convinced that the person I saw was easily reconciled with her appearance as the co-tagonist in The Exterminator. I tried many other imaginings, but none came as clearly to me as that first sighting. This isn't the type of character I've envisioned before. I'm not even sure what prompted it this time. But the introductory scene of her was so crystal clear in my head. Sometimes a scene or a character simply won't shake loose. This was one of those. 
Maggie rolled away from him, relieved his session was over. She sat up and swung her legs over the side of the bed. It was out of fashion, but she wore her hair loose and natural. The auburn waves undulated down below her shoulder blades. She clutched the bedsheet to her chest, about to stand up and wrap it around herself. She stopped when she felt him reach out and rub his knuckles up and down the small of her back. She winced as he slowly traced his fingers along the bruises he'd left there. It took all of her composure not to flinch away in revulsion. You really should come to Killian with me. Microtech is building a new facility there. They landed a contract to make exclusive components for military devices. What's that got to do with Revel and York, she asked. You know these executive types. They need their luxury hangars, especially in less than ideal climates. I'll be administering the design and the construction. He folded his arms behind his head. We'll be there for a couple of years at least. If you come, I can help you start a small business, a modest shop of some kind, lots of activity in the area. He looked around her apartment. Your place and things always look so chic. You have a knack for it. He leaned over and coiled a fistful of her hair around the palm of his hand. There, you'd only have to worry about pleasing me. We could be seen together in public, no questions asked. She yanked her hair out of his grasp and stood up. What about your wife? What about her? He stretched and yawned. She's not coming. Doesn't like to travel and damn glad of. I bet you are, she thought to herself. Aloud, she said, but you're glad of her money, and so am I. She felt him rise up behind her, but this time she was faster than he was. She bolted off the bed and moved out of arm's reach before turning to face him. He wasn't bold enough to hurt her while she was looking directly at him. She seethed on the inside, coward. To him, she said, I need to straighten up. Another customer coming soon. He glared at her, hands balled into fists. Larry was tall, dark, and handsome, as they say. But it was his soul that made him ugly. He backed off the bed into a standing position. You know that disgusts me. Playing innocent, she cocked her head to one side. What's that? He ground his teeth and flexed his jaw before answering. The idea of other men, he spat. She wanted to laugh in his face. Instead, she said, Sorry, love. You know you're the only special one. Placating him felt like chewing on glass. She did it because he was her highest paying and most frequent customer. She needed him for a while yet. He dressed quickly, jerking on his clothes in anger. She walked him to the door, feigning concern for his feelings, and gave him assurances that she would consider his generous offer. And she would just not in the way he thought. Maggie wondered why anyone married these creatures. 
She could respect the single men looking for diversion and satisfaction, or the older lonely ones. Unfortunately, Larry's species was much more common, especially among the clientele of licensed paramours. It helped them feel less grimy in their illicit behavior and unfaithfulness. Maggie sat across from Kitty. She was on the sofa trying not to be consumed by the avalanche of brightly colored fluffy pillows. Kitty was sitting cross-legged on her bed. Her face was heart-shaped and matched her plump girlish figure. Maggie was her polar opposite, tall, lithe with keen features and almond-shaped eyes that dominated her face. Kitty looked at Maggie expectantly, her bright blue eyes framed by three-inch artificial lashes that made a clicking sound when she blinked. Her surgically altered lips were set in a perpetually plump pout. So, what's this idea you wanted to talk about? Haven't heard you that excited in ages. Larry mentioned something that got me thinking about changing my line of work. Kitty made a sour face. Larry? Ew! Surprised you're smiling after seeing him, she interrupted. He has his uses. Teasing, Maggie said. We can't all have romper room sessions. Waving her hand at Kitty's outfit, she continued. I don't think they make those in my size. Kitty popped to her feet on the bed, overturning several pillows and life-size stuffed unicorns. She struck an innocent pose and pressed an index finger to the corner of her mouth. In her best apologetic child's voice, she replied, I know, Kitty Sawy, Maggie Big Limb Giant. She spread her arms wide. Come, Kitty make it all better. They both guffawed. Referring to Kitty's current outfit of pink ballet slippers, thigh-high pink and white striped tights, multicolored tutu, and pink leather bustier, Maggie said, I don't know how you wear that shit all day. Stealing a line from Maggie, she replied, it has its uses, and flounced down into a sitting position. So, what's this idea? In the past, Larry's mentioned incentives offered to folks who settle on newly terraformed planets or bring new businesses to underserved areas. He's being shipped out to oversee construction of new Revelin York hangars in Killian. He wants me to go with. Would help me start a small business of some sort for income with him as my only client. Kitty's eyes widened in horror. Shaking her finger, Maggie said, Not to worry. Fuck being tied to that asshole. Patting her chest feverishly, Kitty said, Thank God, almost gave baby a heart attack. But his offer got me thinking, though. Why can't we start up a business in a system where subsidies are being offered on our own? Even without a grant, if we could find a reliable lead on a developing community and the inside track on a prime location, we'd be in decent shape. Maggie leaned back for a minute to consider. She looked around Kitty's apartment. 
It was the same size, all by themed for her clientele's tastes. Their quarters were larger than average, being corner units. They had space for an oversized bed, formal sitting area, kitchenette, and a bathroom with double-sized shower and a jacuzzi. The coup de grace, however, was the breathtaking view, a feature very few others on the Granada space station had. These suites were usually reserved for corporations, high-ranking government personnel, and military officials. Their ability to acquire them was the benefit of being a licensed paramour paying top union dues. The paramour union bid for and championed getting their members the best accommodations. They argued it kept up one's spirit and attracted a better class of patrons, and they were right. There were many nights when Maggie soothed her aching body and bruised soul by staring out of her apartment's lavish floor-to-ceiling windows. The view of Van from this distance was mesmerizing. Predominantly covered in ice, it was a pale blue ghost in a perpetual night sky of deep space. She could lose herself for hours, watching ships pop in and out of quantum, arriving and departing from Granada, the largest residential and commercial space station in all of Croshaw. Her life here was far from perfect, but she'd seen worse. Her parents were hard-working but unskilled laborers. Clinging to their faith, they shunned modern birth control options and struggled to provide for five children. Her early years was spent in slums of overly crowded, resource-stretched cities. Her teens, living in what amounted to little more than tin cans with oxygen on congested space stations. When she was 18, she set out on her own, determined to have better. Her career as a paramour had provided comfort and predictability. She knew the rhythm of every day before it began. She wanted for nothing and had, over the years, sent money to her family, who begrudgingly accepted it. Her father, all that was left of their tragic clan, was ashamed of her and refused to visit. His voice echoed in her head. Glad your mother isn't alive to see this. Maggie had always wondered at the stupid saying. She couldn't imagine anything she could ever do that her mother being dead was preferable, jackass. Kitty scrunched up her face, confused. What, hun? Maggie blinked, coming back to herself. Nothing. Look, we can do more than this. See more than this. Glancing around the room, have more than this. I don't know. This is pretty good. Kitty grabbed a nearby unicorn and hugged it to her chest. I'm being serious, Kitty. Are you going to be rocking that outfit when you're 50? 60? If not, then what? Not planning that part now is how we end up eating out of trash bins later. Kitty sighed and dropped the baby act. I know what you mean. I do think about it sometime, but it makes my tummy hurt. No shit. 
It's risky and scary. But I don't want to do this forever or wait until it's too late. I could maybe squeak by alone, but my savings can't cover relocating and starting a business. She looked up to gauge Kitty's reaction. Together, we could. Don't think it could be just you and me. We'd need a third to be safe. Kitty warmed to the idea. She knew Maggie to be a level-headed person. Men do it all the time in business. I have a few clients that love telling me about their big deals and how savvy they are, all the while wanting to play patty cake with little me. She giggled. I agree, though. There's safety in numbers. Exactly. You, me, and Basha could do it. We're good friends, and we trust each other. Kitty hopped off the bed and sat on the sofa next to Maggie, her face alert. Think three is enough? There's travel, startup costs, license fees, and we have to live on something while things get going. I was thinking we should focus on finding a place where we could live on the premises in the beginning. That way all of the money is going into the business location, minus food. She poked Kitty in the ribs when she saw her make a face at the idea of cohabitation. Temporary girls club. She poked her to the point of tickling popcorn and pillow fights. She laughed while Kitty squirmed. When she stopped laughing, Kitty took a slow look around her room. I haven't shared a room in ages. Momentarily slipping back into her shtick, Baby wipes her stuff. So does Maggie. We can have our stuffs again later. You in? Kitty got up and went to the window. This view. She leaned her cheek against the cool glass. How far do you think we'd have to go? Honestly, I don't know. It wouldn't be immediate. We can take our time and shop around. Turning back to Maggie, she asked, how are we going to get the inside track on something? Maggie looked at her cockeyed. Come on. You don't think between the three of us we can find a client who can scare up some information? Two. Kitty turned away again. You in? I can't do this without you, Kitty. She hesitated. Don't mean to pressure you, but... You, me, and Basha have been each other's rock for years. Two might could do it, but... Kitty faced the room again and took a deep breath. I'm in. Not leaving baby behind. Maggie jumped up from the sofa and clapped her hands. Excellent. Now the real work begins. Maggie had waited over three hours for the time delay response from Richard. She was sitting at her dining table, half of which served as a desk. Watching his reply on the vid mail, she could see how much he'd aged in the years since she'd last seen him. Widowerhood wasn't doing him any favors. His bushy hair was completely gray, including his eyebrows. 
He gained weight, and his gentle face was completely lined. His hazel eyes, however, were still kind. It's good to hear from you, Maggie. It's been a while. My work in Goss is going well. Kind of you to ask. I'm surprised and relieved to hear that you're contemplating a different career. Chortling as though it were a shared joke, he said, Lord knows you are good at what you do, but I always suspected you could do more. Maggie glowed on the inside from his sweet words. It wasn't something she heard often. To her father, all of her choices seemed a day late and a credit short. Richard continued, I made contact with a few leads to see what was available, and I think I lucked up on a sound opportunity in Stanton. Stanton? Maggie paused the playback and searched for the Stanton star system on her data pad. Not much information on it other than it contained four super-Earths and the locals were in a quarrel about ownership with the UEE. She pressed play on the tablet again. It's a rare find of four planets that are geologically capable of supporting life. The pioneers and separatists have been freely making use of the star system since its discovery. But now that the UEE is strapped for cash and resources, they're claiming eminent domain. He rolled his eyes as if he wasn't necessarily in agreement. We're not sure what's going to happen with the planets themselves, but there's an asteroid belt actively being mined, which ensures a certain level of commerce. Green Imperial Housing Exchange is building a station and trading post inside one of the asteroids. It won't be luxurious, nothing the likes of Granada, but it's a safe bet it will attract a high amount of traffic, especially during the early years of terraforming the system's planets. Maggie traced the outline of Richard's face on the display. She knew him to possess exceptional business acumen. More importantly, he was a good person. Friend of a friend knows the leasing agent I took the liberty of transferring them a security deposit to hold the location that meets your expressed requirements. Things are moving quickly, though. You only have four weeks to arrive on site with a six-month rent deposit and to sign the papers. They don't want any absentee landlords or people squatting on the spots. If you miss the deadline, the security is forfeited. I hope this arrangement is agreeable to you. I think it's an excellent opportunity, and selfishly, it would allow me to occasionally see you since I passed through there on business. You can repay me the deposit in credits, or a huge grin spread across his face, or in services. Good luck. Hope to see you soon. Maggie was dumbstruck. He'd already secured a place. Holy shit! Her excitement immediately gave way to the harsh reality of a looming deadline. We have to raise the money, pack up, and be there in four weeks. She bolted up from the table and began pacing. They probably had their credits for the rent, but then they needed more to turn it into whatever business they selected and have funds to live off of in the interim might have enough if we liquidated everything we own. She chewed on her fingernail 
but abruptly stopped, not liking the taste of the red glitter lacquer on it. Only keep bare necessities to take with. Live off space rations for a while if we have to. She cupped her forehead. Kitty's not going to like that idea. The 15 days since her conversation with Richard had been a blur. Getting rid of her big ticket items had been the easy part. The station had a waiting list for her apartment. They were more than happy to take it off her hands furnished. She was bunking with Basha, who'd found someone to take the lease on her smaller apartment and was willing to wait until she departed if Basha paid the first month's rent, which she did. Dealing with Larry had been infinitely harder. She'd physically moved in with Basha before canceling her client sessions to avoid anyone showing up looking for an answer, particularly Larry. The messages he'd left had quickly escalated from concern to outrage to threats. He refused her offer to meet in a public place to discuss her change in circumstances, claiming someone who knew his wife might see them. He eventually relented, where her final reply said that if he didn't want to meet in public, there was no point in contacting her again. Maggie was sitting alone at a bistro table on the observatory deck of the Tip Top, watching customers come and go. Tip Top was a popular gathering place for drinks and to have a light meal, owed to the glass walls and spinning platform, which afforded an amazing view of the space station and van. Being one of the few public locations with an exterior view at all, it was also a favorite spot for visitors to congregate. She'd asked the hostess for a table at the back edge of the round dining room. She didn't want to be sitting front and center if her conversation with Larry became contentious. Not that she should care. She was leaving. Still... She checked the time again. Larry was uncharacteristically late. She suddenly regretted not taking the coward's way out by leaving him vidmail on the day of her departure. But she didn't want him harassing anyone he thought knew her or contacting the Paramore Union. This way, if he did, she could respond that she'd done everything in a professional manner. In which case, they'd put him in his place and threaten to blacklist him if he persisted. Although she didn't plan on needing the union again, it was better to play things safe. No point in burning a bridge she might have to cross again one day. Deciding that she was only waiting another ten minutes, she looked up from her watch to find him staring at her from the entrance. Here we go. He had that look on his face, the one he wore when contemplating how far he could push her. Maggie schooled her expression into a mask of calm aloofness. The room was full, with a line of people waiting at the entrance. Occupants were dressed to be on display. She watched Larry weave his way toward her. He wore a chest-hugging shirt, slim-fitting pants, and an aged leather duster. His swagger was attractive, and he knew it. He planted on his patent slanted sexy smile. 
they both noticed a few heads swivel in his direction. When he reached the table, he leaned over to kiss her, but she pointedly turned away. We're not sweethearts, she said. Could be. How easily you forget you're married. He waved away the statement and sat down across from her. That's a circumstance and nothing more. Maggie rolled her eyes. If you say so. So, what's the cloak and dagger routine? I've been seeing you for almost four years. Or rather, I've been paying you that long. He looked down his nose at her. Maggie wasn't taking the bait, nor was she insulted. She always considered him and all of her clients' business. He couldn't hurt her feelings by stating the obvious. You seemed not to understand my change in status. She sipped at the goblet of red wine in her hand. The new tenant says you've contacted her several times looking for me. She put the glass down and leisurely folded her hands on the table. She doesn't know me. We are not friends. It's a business arrangement of her taking over my lease, period. He put both of his arms on the table when he spoke. You're living somewhere. I want that address. He leaned forward with a menacing smile. I'll get it eventually. Stations only but so big. Maggie made a mental note to tell Basha that they needed to be more careful entering and exiting the apartment. Basha's place was on one of the lower floors with modest accommodations and less security. I already told you, the friend I'm with isn't fond of visitors. She works from home. Still claiming it's a she, he asked with a raised eyebrow. Not claiming, telling. She reached for the wine glass, but he grabbed her hand instead. I don't believe you. How are you living? She resisted the urge to jerk her hand back. He was being civil. Well, his brand of civil anyway. On my savings. Like I told you, I'm entering a new line of work and making a fresh start. He toyed with her fingers, alternately rubbing them gently and applying uncomfortable pressure. I think that's a great idea, and I can help. I think you missed the fresh start part of that. Fresh means not being a paramour or a mistress. She looked him directly in the eyes. Here was a fact he couldn't refute or weasel around. He laughed. <laughs> not likely. Think you're the first whore to say that? She pulled her hand out of his grasp. He narrowed his eyes and looked around to see if anyone was watching. Pipe dream, nothing more. Well, it's my pipe to smoke. She stood up and let her mask fall away. Her eyes raked over him with disgust. I've suspended my license and notified the union about potentially unwanted contact from a client, an accusation they don't take lightly. If you contact me again in any way, I'll notify them and you'll be blacklisted. She stepped back from the table when he rose. He lurched for her arm, but she leaned out of the way. The glasses and cutlery on the table rattled violently. Heads swung in their direction. Conscious of the sudden stares, he said, 
We'll discuss this later. You'll see things my way before it's all said and done. I promise you that. There was a palpable threat behind the statement, but she refused to let him see her acknowledge it. So, she tossed her hair and laughed. Bye, Larry. Fearful of Larry's threats, Maggie convinced Kitty and Basha it was better to be gone as soon as possible. They each took extra care when leaving or returning to the apartments. Maggie did her best to conduct as much of her final business as she could using video conferences. She sold her remaining possessions through a third-party merchant to avoid sharing information with potential buyers. Unfortunately, moving up their timetable compromised how much money they earned for liquidating their assets. It also landed them with horrible travel arrangements to Stanton by having to take whatever was cheapest and readily available for three people. An hour before they were due to board a Starliner to Ferron as the first hop on their journey, Kitty still hadn't arrived at the departure gate. Basha and Maggie were sitting alone on a bench near the glassed wall watching the ground crew prepare the Starliner for departure. The Starliner was one of Crusader Industries' premier passenger transport ships. It was long and narrow, with sleek lines accentuated by red racing stripes. Maggie watched the ground crew refuel and load cargo. She wished they'd been able to go with their original plan of securing private cabins. Unfortunately, that was no longer an option with their accelerated departure arrangements. Basha's voice interrupted her wishful thinking. No surprise, Kitty's late. Basha was moderate in height and full-figured. She wore a tan cowl hood sweater with a tight-fitting jumpsuit that emphasized her curves. She had the hood up, the exaggerated falls draped against the sides of her face, contrasting against her mocha-colored skin and covered her tattooed scalp. Her voice was deep and sensual. It's going to be really interesting to see her offstage interacting without her props. Both women smiled. She's not responding to her Moby either. Probably on silent, old habit and all. If she misses this flight, she's screwed. These are non-refundable passes. She'd find a means to control her way on the next one. I'm fairly certain of that. Maggie exhaled and tried to relax, but another 30 minutes passed and still no kitty. The boarding light turned on and passengers were beginning to enter the ramp to board the ship. Maggie and Basha were near the door, standing off to the side, craning their necks, looking for Kitty. Maggie gasped when she spotted her. She grabbed Basha's hand and squeezed it so hard, her knuckles turned white. What the? Maggie's mouth fell open. She saw Larry arch his eyebrows and smirk while holding Kitty in a death grip slightly in front of him. One side of Kitty's face was red. Her eyes were watery and her upper lip quivered. Think fast, Maggie screamed inwardly. 
Larry abruptly forced Kitty to stop walking and she almost tripped over her own feet. People brushed past the two on their way to the boarding ramp. He crooked a finger at Maggie and pointed to her and then to Kitty, as if to gesture and exchange. Basha, now fully aware of what was going on, said, No fucking way! The ball's on this fucker! Maggie watched in horror as he began slowly backing up, heading toward a secluded corner. No way she could follow him there. Realistically, what could he do if she screamed? She didn't think he was armed, but she couldn't know for sure. She suddenly remembered a prime lesson from self-defense training about never allowing yourself to be taken to an isolated location. Her mind raced. Wouldn't he just let Kitty go if she boarded the ship? Shit! Her stomach roiled. What are we going to do? Basha asked. Maggie was about to say she had no idea when one came to her. She dropped the small valise she'd been carrying at Basha's feet. She smoothed back her hair and walked forward. Behind her, she heard the gate attendant announce, Final boarding! She saw Larry sneer when she headed in his direction. Halfway to him, at the end of the line of passengers still boarding, Maggie spotted a young man alone bringing up the rear. He was wearing a bomber jacket with cargo pants and looked pretty fit. She stopped in front of him and gave him her most divine smile. I'm sorry to bother you. She laid a hand on his chest. My friend isn't feeling well and needs help boarding. She pointed toward Kitty and saw Larry's eyes narrow. That gentleman there was kind enough to help her this far, but he's not boarding. She used a hand to slowly brush her bang out of her eyes and battered her lashes. Buy you a drink on board if you can give us a hand. The young man's face brightened. Sure, no problem. I'm Maggie, by the way, she said, while simultaneously hooking her arm through his and moving him along. I'm Xavier. With an excessive sound of being pleased, she cooed, Marvelous. Don't hear that one much these days. She noticed Larry stiffen as they approached, and she tightened her grip on Xavier's arm. Kitty, this wonderful gentleman has offered to assist you to the ship. She kept her eyes trained on Kitty's face, praying she'd play along. I explained that you're not feeling well and need assistance getting to your seat. Kitty looked the part. Her free arm was hugging her stomach and beads of sweat were trickling down the sides of her face. Uh, okay, th thank you, she stammered. Larry interjected himself. No need. I can help them both. Dismissively, he added, you can run along. Xavier raised his eyebrows, bent his head to one side, and cracked his neck. He felt Maggie's grip on his arm tighten when Larry spoke. Don't think that's possible unless you have a boarding pass. 
he turned his attention momentarily to Maggie and smiled. I'm here to help either way. He extended a hand to Kitty, who grabbed it like a life preserver. He felt Maggie begin backing away, and so did he, gently tugging on Kitty. Behind her, Kitty heard Basha say, Come on, last boarding, with a raised voice, followed by, Hang on, those three are coming. Good girl, Maggie thought, correctly assuming Basha was pointing them out to the attendant. Larry went rigid, and he momentarily yanked Kitty back to him. Bless Xavier, who didn't let go or give in. He continued tugging on Kitty while stepping backward one foot at a time. Hurried footsteps came up behind them. Excuse me, but you have to board now. Please hurry. The young woman in her black uniform with red trim commanded. Kitty fell forward into Xavier as Larry let go. Maggie grabbed her arm and the three of them hurried toward the boarding ramp. Sorry for the holdup, Larry said in a silky voice to the attendant. I need a boarding pass. Maggie overheard and turned her head in horror. I'm sorry, this flight is booked. Next available departures in three hours. I have a standing first-class status, surely. My apologies, sir, there are no seats. As soon as I get them boarded, I'll be happy to assist you in boarding passage on the next flight. Please wait here. She turned and rushed Maggie, Kitty, Basha, and Xavier through the tunnel. While the quartet was walking down the main aisle of the ship, looking for their seats, Maggie turned to Xavier, who was directly behind her. Thank you. I'll happily buy you a drink or several after takeoff. You don't have to, but I'll gladly oblige if it's not an inconvenience. Boring flight ahead and not tired enough to sleep through it. They were nearing the middle of the cabin where Maggie knew their seats to be. Spotting the row, she said, We're over there. Come on by when you're ready. I'm up a bit further. He walked past them, then turned back to Maggie. Not to pry, but I hope you have help where you're going. It's easy enough for that bozo to follow you on the next flight. Maggie grinned like a Cheshire cat. He could, if it was our final destination, but it's not. We have many more flights to go. Doing it on the cheap and last minute is taking us via a very circuitous route. She exhaled. We're good now. Thanks again. He winked at her. Excellent. See you later. The End Worlds Will Collide Nightbus Episode 7's Journey to Stanton moves Cammy from Chop Shop toward Stanton, which is where the characters from The Exterminator reside. I'm not done with either of those storylines yet. Stay tuned to the Star Citizen Nightbus for more. The Nightbus has arrived. Please collect all personal items and watch your step while disembarking. 
This ship will re-enter stasis in three, two, one. Thank you for listening. The Night Bus Fiction Collective was written and narrated by L.M. Bryant, also known as Alyssiana Noir. All rights are reserved. Please note that these are works of fan fiction set in the Star Citizen universe. The Marks and Properties, Star Citizen, Squadron 42, Cloud Imperium Games, and Robert Space Industries are property of Cloud Imperium Games Corp. and Robert Space Industries Corp. All rights in the content, including places, characters, concepts, and ships produced and created by RSI relating to said marks and properties belong to RSI. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed The Night Bus Fiction Collective, Volume 1.